Yes, hello, and welcome to another session at the Corona Committee. This is a very quick one. We have a quick sequence because we took up the opportunity here in Berlin, in Vienna, to meet interesting people. So we had two sessions in a row. Today is committee session 122, and we call it the Congress is dancing. We uh, came up with that title because we're in Vienna, and you know that term. And uh, there's a special historic connotation. But of course, we thought about why we call it the Congress is dancing. Uh, I think the title is actually wrong. It should be the Congress was dancing, because that was two and a half, 200 years ago when Napoleon was taken prisoner. And the people in Vienna know that exactly. Well, when he was taken prisoner, for two years, uh, it was the Congress of Vienna, which was supposed to reorganize Europe. And whatever was there before was uh, completely smashed. And then at the Congress of Vienna, they had to reorganize the place. And most of it happened in the back rooms. The people were having a great time. They were dancing. The delegations had a good time. But the real decisions were made in the back rooms, who does what, who gets which territory, and so on. And that's exactly what we do not want. We want the exact opposite. We want that the people can participate, that they can be part of it. We're proud to be Democrats, and that people can participate, that they can talk. Uh, we have the modern technology that uh, enables that, and that ha doesn't have to be done in back rooms and whatever. Uh, is happening in exclusive circles now with people, which is, of course, the subject matter of what we're dealing with here at the Corona Committee. We know what that means for the people and how dangerous it is and the damage that it causes. And so far, as long as I have been around, I only know that democracy is the best form the way society organizes it and that's what we learned at school we learned that in our curriculum and where is it now nobody talks about democracy anymore but we want democracy we want to talk about it and that's why the media are so important we need a parallel media world we have a media world which unfortunately we even have to pay for um, which led us into this situation of emergency. And now we need a world of media that shows us how things can be done differently. I, I still think that uh, the title is still rather fitting because it can be a warning, it can be an admonition that uh, people are dancing and in the back room, people are deciding what to do. Nothing against dancing. Dancing is great. Oh, yes, uh, we will have a great party tomorrow, and I'm looking forward to that. That's why uh, we actually came up with this word of dancing. At any rate, it is great here from all of the world. So many things are happening, and this is uh, the moment when the trap shuts close, and everything is happening. The doctors are talking to the lawyers, the media people are involved, and it all goes hand in hand. So in the past two years, this overwhelmed all of us. It just came over us like a steamroller. And two years ago, or two and a half years ago by now, we have to say, 
many of the participants, maybe Wolfgang, he knew it from up front, but uh, no, none of us actually knew what was happening. We thought we live in a democracy that is uh, working. Of course, we knew there was lobbyism, but I didn't know. Nobody knew how uh, fragile and uh, vulnerable our democracy actually is. And therefore, I think we have really picked up steam and we go beyond borders, beyond language borders too, and also beyond discipline. So we now have an interdisciplinary interconnection. Yes, and it's a great opportunity. We have people from all over the world so we can show uh, that it's not only like this here, but uh, it's amazing. Things are happening all over the globe. Yes, and when you look at the pharmaceutical industry, the way they have been doing that, I mean, that's been around for a longer time, maybe for 20 even more years. Uh, they have been interlocking their interests with those of the politicians. And therefore, I think we have been picking up speed and we're almost there to ready to catch up. So we have our first guest here now. I will now move to English. He's a journalist, and I heard him yesterday on the uh, on the media conference, and I thought we have to really talk to you. It would be great if you could give, give us a little bit of detail of your background and how you got involved as a journalist in this whole, well, craze. Yeah, okay. <laughs> well, first, thanks for having me. And uh, Entschuldigung, ich habe Deutsch gelernt vor zwei Jahren in meiner Uni, aber ich habe alles vergessen. So that's all I remember. Okay, uh, yeah. klingt nicht so, als sei alles vergessen. Aber. Yeah. Uh, so I started my journey as a homeopath uh, back in 2002. I started to learn about the pharma industry, how homeopaths have been vilified for hundreds of years, and that medical tyranny continued. And so uh, it made it very difficult to continue being a homeopath because we were identified as quacks, as non-medical, non-scientific. And eventually, uh, I couldn't maintain a practice because it was so hard to, you know, have funding yet. We don't have any insurance coverage. Um, and so I became a teacher. Uh, early on in my career as a homeopath, I was doing both part-time. And then eventually, I gave up uh, homeopathy and started doing teaching full-time. So teaching young children uh, in public schools. I was teaching music and uh, physical education, special education children. And then in 2020, one of my former homeopathic professors from Toronto, Canada, contacted me and said, listen, I can't practice homeopathy here in Austria because we graduated from homeopathic colleges, we're considered lay homeopaths, and only the MDs can practice homeopathy. So uh, I run workshops for, home, uh, for um, MDs on homeopathy, and they've all contacted me saying that since COVID has started, they're no longer allowed to treat any patients with COVID-19 with homeopathic remedies, even though there is no existing drug treatment for COVID. And I thought, this is ludicrous. And immediately I said, you know what, this is a scam. So then I started paying attention to it because I wasn't really too worried. We had uh, already worked out some prophylaxis with homeopathy. And I started looking at the figures and the data. And, you know, immediately first thing coming out was uh, Italy. 94% uh, of the deaths were uh, analyzed and looked at. And they're age 65 and over with multiple comorbidities. And again, the same thing was happening, starting to happen in Ontario and across Canada. Most of the deaths were happening in the long-term care homes. 80% of our deaths were identified there. And then, you know, we had a great politician, um, Randy Hillier. He was, I believe, the first politician in the world speaking out against this in April 2020. And he was questioning our provincial government, saying, you know, why are we taking elderly patients out of the hospitals and putting them into long-term care facilities where all the infection is happening, where the deaths are happening? Um, 
And so immediately, uh, I just kept on looking at all the data and started posting it on social media. And you know, speaking about media during the conference, uh, we now know that social media is so important. It has also become part of the mainstream media now. So as I was doing that, posting for family and friends, and then getting involved in some uh, teacher uh, groups, talking about uh, you know, all these teachers that are worried, we need to get uh, kids out of school, whatnot. I started posting some articles from, I believe it was in the uh, Netherlands or Norway, where at first they opened up the schools with a lot of restrictions, but then after six weeks or so, the parents started talking with the, the teachers and vice versa, and they said, listen, you know, if a child falls down, cuts their knee, we don't want to send them to a hospital. We'd love to be able to just give them a hug and put on a Band-Aid. So eventually, the anxiety came down, the masks came down, the, the measures within the schools came down. So I posted these in social media groups for teachers, and immediately, the vilification was incredible you're not a doctor, you know what, uh, get off your Google computer, your diploma. Um, and I thought, you know, this is crazy. This narrative is so strong. Uh, I eventually ended up having to change my name to Gord Parks because uh, the Facebook groups that I was in for, even my local area, I was posting things and same thing, I was being attacked. And I teach in the same area that I, I uh, live in. And I didn't want to, you know, cause problems with my professional life. So I changed my name to Gord Parks from Glenn Jung. Um, and this is how it all began and then uh, I kept on writing and writing and then some activists contacted me and said can you produce some content for our groups and then eventually I thought you know what uh, because I'm analyzing the data from Ontario government from Canadian governments from around the world uh, I'd be posting a lot of the infection rates talking about the PCR test talking about the Drosden report um, I decided to start making it more formal and started Bright Light News in 2020 of September mm -hmm. and from there it's just continued and you know, I went from uh, being a teacher, not a journalist, to having interviewed over 100 people now, and including uh, Robert Malone, Peter McCullough, Pierre Corey, Tess Laurie, uh, and the list goes on, and even the uh, Honorable Brian Peckford, who is the last living co-author of our Charter of Rights and Freedoms in Canada, an incredible being, um, who actually saved our Charter of Rights. It only came into being in 1984. Um, ironically, Justin Trudeau's father, Pierre Trudeau, tried to unilaterally uh, create the Constitution, uh, the Charter of Rights. But thankfully, Brian Peckford stepped up and said no, they took him to the Supreme Court, he lost his bid, uh, Pierre Trudeau did, and Brian Peckford actually helped to get the existing Charter of Rights into our Constitution. So the guy is a national hero, should be on a uh, dollar bill or so uh, in Canada. So I've had the great fortune of meeting so many people and it's led to this unexpected um, I guess uh, expertise some people have said that I've developed now in terms of what's happening in Canada and looking at the, the science and the vaccines and whatnot. So that's how I've ended up here and fortunately was asked to be here at this conference to speak as a new media uh, journalist. Yeah. So what is the situation that you can see in Canada uh, with regards to the, the vaccine situation, the whatever injuries or, and also the, 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 you know, the mood in the population? Uh, like everywhere around the world, it's insanity. Um, we most recently had a citizen's hearing conducted by the Canadian COVID care lines. It was three days of hearings where they invited the public to come in, speak about the COVID response and how it had affected them. So they had everyone from vaccine injured people who, to people who had lost family members. We had doctors come in, lawyers, politicians come in to speak, uh, professors, students who were locked out of schools because they didn't get vaccine um, exemptions. They weren't honoring the exemptions. Um, what we're seeing is, is I think the same thing around the world. It's 
most of society has wanted to move on but are still not yet aware of the impacts of the of the COVID response and especially of the vaccines. Um, I created a trailer for the citizens hearing it and it was exclusive. It's a five minute trailer about vaccine injured people and we had one woman even come out who said, you know, I didn't know what a vaccine injury was. I didn't even know it was a thing until I experienced it myself. And uh, it's a very powerful five minute trailer that I showed to some friends that have been vaccinated. And one of my friends who uh, actually is waiting for the fourth vaccine watched this video and all he could say to me was, it's a bit one-sided, isn't it? And I thought, my God, all we've heard for two years is this marketing slogan that it's safe and effective. Mm -hmm. All we've heard in the media, through the government, through our public health officials, and all you can say for the first time that you hear actual vaccine injury uh, victims, as well as people who lost family members, is that this is one-sided. So the narrative is still alive and strong. Um, you know, I have a profound respect for what fear can do for people now, how it can render you uh, critically nonsensical. Um, and so in the mood in Canada, I would say, uh, you know, it's hard to put a number on it, but I would say a majority of the people are still going along with it, but people are growing tired of it. Most recently, Justin Trudeau came out and said that we need 80 to 90% of the people to get vaccinated, get the boosters, um, or else we're going to... How many are vaccinated officially now with... I know uh, when we had the double vaccination rate, it's, uh, I believe, around 80%. Um, 85% and it dropped down uh, with each subsequent vaccination. We just had the fourth shot rollout in July 16th and um, two days later we had a 50-year-old Canadian uh, doctor die who was uh, an ex-Olympian sailor and also a marathon runner, dropped dead. Uh, of course the new buzzword now is for 2022 is sudden, unex sudden unexpected death. He dropped dead while running. Um, Within five days, sorry, within two weeks, we had five Greater Toronto Area, which is about six, seven million people. Five doctors die within two weeks of that uh, rollout. Um, you know, of the sudden death syndrome, well, basically, or whatever. Yeah, they... Dr. Paul Hannum was actually uh, one of the sudden deaths. Uh, another one was a young 27-year-old physician, Dr. Candice Naiman. She was a triathlete, actually died during her swim at a meet. Uh, we had another doctor who. Uh, he had a chronic illness that they, apparently that they would not disclose, but another two of them, and these guys are all about 49, 50 years old, uh, two of them had cancers that were uh, with minimal symptoms, but over the past year exploded, became aggressive, and they succumbed to their uh, cancers. So, I mean, this is exactly what Dr. Ryan Cole is talking about, this explosion of cancers that, he, that he's seeing, that he's hearing from various oncologists around the world. So again, in Canada, what we're looking at is a majority of the population would still, if asked to go ahead and get the vaccine. Trudeau last year, it was, uh, it was revealed that he had ordered 370 million doses by contract. So he, there are enough doses, 10 doses per Canadian right now. Um, but thankfully, I think, uh, you know, we put out a couple of interviews with Dr. Richard Urso and another Canadian pathologist, Dr. Roger Hawkinson talking about these five doctor deaths and hopefully we are going to see some changes. Hopefully we'll see some doctors rethink getting the fourth shot. Um, I know there's a, there's a Canadian epidemiologist who used to work with uh, a media company um, and there is some talk amongst doctors now that they're discussing these deaths. You know, even though the Trillium Health Network where three of these doctors died within those two weeks came out with a statement and said, you know, there are rumors on social media that this is connected to the vaccines. This is simply not true. 
we know that they have done no autopsies. We don't know how they make these statements, right? It's, it's all part of this continued lie, this propaganda. You know what happens when the doctor says, no, I don't want to get vaccine, I don't want to have it. Do they kick him out? Um, yeah, I believe they are no longer allowed to work. Um, and I think the same from around the world. I mean, one of our Canadian doctors, Dr. Mark Trozzi, has a, a fantastic line where he said, if your doctor is not being investigated, if your doctor has not been suspended, then run. <laughs> you know, so any doctor who has uh, spoken out against the lockdowns, the masks, the vaccines, has actually, uh, is now under investigation, more than likely, um, and which is incredible. Uh, it, the Canadian Physicians, the, the, sorry, the College of Physicians and Surgeons of Ontario actually has in their policy guidelines that no doctor should speak out against any of the locks, the, the mandates against vaccines, lockdowns, uh, and masks. If you do, you could be subject to investigation, suspension, and thankfully we have a lawyer, I mean, you may be familiar with Rocco Galati, he was recently in court and uh, the judge actually ruled that the college has no legal authority to gag the free speech of doctors. So let's hope that this is a turning point because up until this point, the judiciary has been of zero help, right? They've gone fully along with the narrative. So mm -hmm. we're hoping to see some changes now, legally speaking. What with the union in, in the hospitals? Are they organized, the doctors and nurses? Are they in, in a union? Do they, do they gather? Is there any possibility that the people are not alone when, they, when they're facing such pressure? Yeah, I mean, this is the problem. Um, the brilliant thing about what's being orchestrated around the world right now is the fact that they have everybody financially and with their livelihoods at stake. So there are so many doctors who would love to speak out, but are just unwilling to make that sacrifice yet professionally. I mean, look, it took me two years to, to go from Gord Parks to Glen Jung, but as I've left teaching now, I've, I've now gone ahead and made that move uh, because I have my family to think about. Um, so the unions are all pro the narrative, pro what the governments are asking. Um, you know, and ironically, the Nurses Association in Ontario, they won twice in court in 2015 and 2018. They won the right to um, uh, maintain uh, being maskless because what the what the hospitals were trying to do was they were trying to mandate, mandate masks for nurses during flu season. Twice the nurses union went to court said look here's the evidence on the masks and the judges agreed. No masks necessary for nurses uh, during flu season and now I would like to have this this judgment if it's possible and the text of this yeah, yeah. sentences yeah actually you know one of the Canadian frontline nurses uh, Kristen Nagel she's actually here at this conference and she is uh, has spoken a lot about that as well um, you know she actually went down January 6th of 2021 to go speak at a health conference in Washington DC uh, Del Bigtree was there I think he she was invited by him as well as another Canadian frontline nurse they spoke at their health conference and then later they heard about what was happening at the White House, so they walked over. They didn't actually go close to the White House, but they're near the area. And somehow when they came back home to Canada, news reports started flying out about how they were part of this January 6th insurrection, that they were domestic terrorists. Uh, her face was all over the news and she was subsequently uh, put under investigation for being, I believe, a domestic terrorist. Uh, we interviewed her and I, I think I remember her saying that the RCMP showed up at her place at 3 o'clock in the morning. The RCMP is the, our federal police. Um, incredible, incredible what's happening. So, and, and this is the beautiful thing, you know, we were discussing how conferences like these are so important because 
what you find is, you know, when I told the story about the convoy, I had people come up to me and say, you know, this is exactly the same in Germany, what the police did, what the media did, what the government did, you know. Everything, it's all, almost like it's working in lockstep uh, around the world. I, I was recently down at the World COVID-19 Congress in Brazil, and it became almost boring talking to the doctors, interviewing them down there, because it's the same experience. You know, ivermectin, we were curing people, we, we had great success, but they shut it down. So essentially what you're saying, doctor, is that the pandemic uh, should never have happened. Yes. And, Doctor after doctor, so I was like, I, I'm running out of material to ask people questions with, right? So, um. Um, so I, I wanted. To, that's a, that's very interesting what you said about the nurse, because you know, like um, with uh, Matthias Desmet, you know, this mm -hmm. sci, uh, sci, uh, psychologist from Belgium mm -hmm. with the mass formation theory. So he uh, just told me or told us in a in a in a video that um, you know so he had this interview with Tucker Carlson which apparently made a bit of a splash so he comes back home to Belgium and then like a, a concerted media campaign against him starts like everywhere you know like claiming that he um, uh, whatever protected some mass murderer when in fact he was because it was like a, an old uh, thing that like I think it was something about um, you know giving uh, what you call this like uh, a dying person like uh, helping them to uh, euthanasia but yeah. before it was legal or so that that this nurse did that at the, I, I'm not I don't know the whole story but it was something where his right to keep silence about you know what the nurse maybe confessed or this person confessed to him in in the treatment process right. so he was not allowed to reveal it because it was not an immediate threat coming from the person to someone's living now you know mm -hmm. so he didn't know about a crime that was going to be committed but something in the past so it seemed that from a legal point of view he did the right thing back then but whatever so it was a very old thing and um, immediately some mega smear campaign started against him so that seems to be the same thing so someone maybe credible comes out with something the nurse mm -hmm. with her experience she comes back home and boom they're all sitting there already mm -hmm. prepared and then yeah. Yeah. trying to block the information that's well. maybe toxic for the narrative and what's ironic about uh, Matthias Desmo you're telling me right now is that you know they're talking about his, his breach of patient confidentiality what have we all been doing for the last two years? Having to give up our vaccine uh, statuses. I mean, this is crazy. The, the actual gaslighting. They make it normal. Yeah, yeah. If everything we that deliver they deliver anything about our body, all, all about our body, all yeah. about our health. They say we need it for science. We need it for justice. We need it for having a fair social system. Mm -hmm. So you have to participate. You have to be solidarity, and we have to check the solidarity. So we have a good system. So you have to give all your personal data. Mm -hmm. And they are collected by private enterprises. They are collected by the big data octopus. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, it does seem to me that Canada is a especially crazy uh, country now. For this, uh, you seem to be under maybe like Australia also. You know, like under very intense grip of the whole thing. Why do you think that is? I mean, we at some point discussed that it's the former Commonwealth uh, countries, but it doesn't seem to be that in intense like in America. You know, it's, it seems to be very strong in Canada. Why? Why do you have any theory? Yeah, well, I mean, if I was to venture a guess, Canadians, first of all, are very polite people, right? We are very compliant. We're apathetic people. We live a good life. There's nothing really needed to, to rustle our feathers to, you know, we haven't, we haven't spilled a lot of blood like Americans have during the American Revolution. So in that sense, Canadians, uh, you know, if you've met a Canadian traveling through Europe, you know, we're very polite. Uh, I remember once I used to, in my former life I was a waiter and I turned at a, at a function and I elbowed somebody uh, with the tray and then the person looked, instead of me before I could say sorry they said oh I'm sorry 
I said, well, actually, I, I hit you. I, mm -hmm. I apologize, you know. This, <laughs> these are Canadians. So we are so compliant and so trusting of the government, which is the crazy thing because we all know that the greatest atrocities ever performed on humans has always been through government, right? So um, I, it, it's a very strange phenomenon where people will continue to trust the government. You know, before COVID, I would say 9 out of 10 people did not trust the government. Now, after COVID, it's 9 out of 10 people trust the government. Maybe that number has died down now, but I mean, again, the fear has just stoked the fires. Um, you know, why Canada so much? I don't think that they trust the government. They obey the government. Yes, yeah. That's a, that's a great way, it's a great delineation. Um, you know, we know Justin Trudeau is uh, under the, uh, the arm of the WEF. Uh, everybody has seen that video where Klaus Schwab says, you know, we have uh, penetrated the Canadian uh, government and we have uh, half the uh, people in there. You know, uh, half of our cabinet apparently is part of the WEF. You see the, the, th the threats, you see the files of the marionette. Yes, exactly. You see him? The puppets, yeah. <laughs> I mean, it's interesting. Our Deputy Prime Minister, um, Christa Freeland, she used to be a, uh, a reporter in Ukraine. and is now the deputy prime minister um you know shows up again during the ukraine russia war uh to speak and you know apparently there are ties uh, actually no this this is confirmed that her father actually had nazi ties so there's a lot of insidious uh, rabbit holes to go down there's so many rabbit holes it's impossible to go, go down all of them right <laughs> just sticking just trying to stick uh, with the science and show people the data has been hard enough just to keep track of. I mean, there's just so much information out there. But again, um, yeah, why, can, why has Canada been one of the harshest places? I mean, we're five eyes. I think it really is that, um, that influence of the WEF. Uh, in December 2020, the Alberta Premier, Jason Kenney, came out and did a Facebook Live and he said, you know, there's a lot of talk about this great reset and people say it's a conspiracy theory. I'm here to tell you it's not. He had a copy of the book and he actually said, you know, all of the premiers of Canada received a copy of The Great Reset from Klaus Schwab. I thought, wow, this is fantastic. Here it is, we finally have a premier standing up to these measures. But you know what, within a week, two weeks, lockdown, masks in Alberta and I make... This reminds me of the Mao Bible, you know, the little red book. Mm -hmm. The students in the 60s, they had this Mao Bible. Yes. All of them had it. Yeah. And the, the Chinese, they spread it. And you have to have the book of Klaus Schwab now to obey, now to, yeah. to follow this movement. <laughs> yeah, the Schwab Bible now is yes. that it. <laughs> yeah, it's so, I think uh, it's, it's truly incredible, the, the reach. Uh, you know, yesterday I got to ask uh, Robert Malone a question during the Q&A that's related to this. And, and first, I, you know, he spoke about the physicians now in the U.S. being able to lose their licenses if they speak any mis-, dis-, or malinformation. So I thanked Robert before I started speaking. I said, you know, thank you for all your mis-, dis-, and malinformation. Uh, and you are my favorite uh, domestic terrorist. Um, but when I was down at the People's Convoy in the U.S. in March in, in Hagersville, uh, Maryland, that's where the U.S. People Convoy, after they were inspired by the Canadian one, they came up from California, went into Maryland. They parked there. We went down there. Malone spoke, and he talked about uh, him working with, I believe it was a Swiss company, uh, they were looking at doxing the information of 4,000 WF members planted around the globe uh, in media, in government, yes. in public health institutions. And yesterday he said, yeah, we actually have it up. It's on the Malone Institute, uh, I think, .org website now. 
I immediately downloaded it, which is fantastic. And I really encourage all people to go and see who is in your country, who is in your area. Figure out who is a WEF member and, and ask them about this because this is something that really needs to be exposed. You can, you can choose a new name and look into WEF. You become a member there. You get regular all the information you need. You're invited to participate in this movement. Yeah. Very interesting. It's, it's incredible. I mean, you have to know the, you have to know the side. You have to know what they do, how they think, and how the propaganda runs, and how they other people how they make the people follow. Yes, it's interesting. Yeah, I, I mean, mean, they seem to have like a, a new uh, there's a new um, title. This this the, the global shapers, I think it is, isn't it? They have sort of the yeah. new, uh, young global yeah. leaders. Yes, young and then leaders. there's the, the global shapers. And someone just told me. I mean, we have to verify this that they're actually like kind of setting up um, like local teams. You know, yes, like they in, have. They have. you know that. Yes, yeah. Yes, yes. So in every city, there's now a group of like uh, young global shapers or whatever, and you can join them and be part of. Yes, the, they invite you. It's incredible. It's like in Berlin too. There's a group. Yeah? Yes, you can, you can join. No, I don't want to join. <laughs> <laughs> Maybe I, I'll I join and get the inside scoop. Accept me, you know. If I, yeah. if I join and I, I say I just want to, you but know. But you are a global shaper. Well, but luckily not one of uh, Klaus Schwab's uh, <laughs> um, whatever like uh, ideas, set of ideas. So. Um, but is that? I mean, that's. It. I mean, Trudeau had said 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 at some point that there's so many, you know, uh, people like politicians with the the uh, um, uh, VAF, um, you know, whatever W, um, sorry, economic forum background, um, in the in this uh, the government now. Is yeah. I'm, I'm very suspicious when I see, see all those people who who are set to participate. Then, and I, I think of. Of even Russian, like Putin, participated there. He was one of them. Yeah, he was scrubbed from the website. And I think how is a former KGB boss mm -hmm. participating there? What's his role? Yeah, yeah. <laughs> what does he do there? Why did he? What's it's such a mixture of interests there? It's very difficult to understand and to, to see the motives and to see all those the deals they do, secret deals they do. Like in the in, in Vienna in two two hundred years ago in the in the chamber somewhere, you give me some gas, I give you you can have you can sell some weapons, I can do I can pharmaceutical products and they all these deals, we, it's all it's all this theory this conspiracy theory. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. Well, it's very interesting. I mean, we just had the conservative leadership race decided. Pierre Poilievre. Uh, was elected, uh, I think, at 68%, by far a huge margin that he became the new leader of the Conservatives. And turns out he actually was on the WF website, but he has also been scrubbed from there. But if you go back on the Wayback Machine, you can find uh, his, his profile. Um, and interestingly, you know, I mean, he's become a very outspoken person now, uh, apparently for freedom, but I, you know, it's hard, like you said, to know what's behind this veil because up until the Freedom Convoy, I never heard the word freedom come out of his mouth, right? <laughs> he, he would love to highlight the, the um, contradictions of the vaccine mandates for federal employees, but he would never use the word freedom. He would never say anything about defending people's bodily autonomy. But when the convoy came to Ottawa, he starts talking about freedom. Yet, he never came outside, literally 100 meters, to go and talk with... Uh, I mean, we, we tried to invite him onto stage to actually give a speech, but uh, we never heard back from his office. So 
It's you know. opposed. It's a, you know, he's just like opposed to a controlled opposition you know. or whatever like at least he plays along maybe with this kind of the sort of he picks some of the you know of the buzzwords of mm-hmm. of the the protest uh, you know and then tries to you know get that you think oh he's one of us and then he mm-hmm. maybe has a different agenda because i i mean it doesn't mm-hmm. it's very i mean why it's also interesting why would they scrub these people from the website i mean that yeah. that's uh, you know, why would you do that if there wasn't something fishy about it? If, if those people who have their agenda there that we observe in, in WEF, World Economic Forum, and you, you, they are very rich and they can afford uh, hiring very good people, very skilled people to do their job. And they send them to all organizations. They are everywhere. They find them in the, in the, civil, in the civil organizations. You find them in parties. You find them everywhere. Mm-hmm. And I would do so if I were, were in their place. For sure they do. They would be stupid not to do. Yeah. So we have to think of that. We have to be aware wherever we work, wherever we cooperate, we, have to, we cannot trust we are in something like a war. I, they I declare the war against early. terrorism, they again, the war yeah. against viruses, but it's, a, it's just a war of interests. And uh, we are defending democracy, and they are defending something like uh, monarchy or something, some ancient thing, some where some people can rule and control all the others. And this is a big conflict, but they have the money. They have lots of. They have our money. That's the ironic thing. You know, they're they're doing this to us with our money. Yes. Uh, but I agree with you. You know, I, I would actually say we are in a war. It's a PR war. I mean, this is all it is. And that's yes. why, for me, I chose for my level of activism through journalism, because until we are able to get the public aware of what's happening and enough of them on our side, then we can have the politicians care about what's being said. Then we can have the judiciary care about what's being said. But right now, I mean, everybody's for this, uh, the public, mm. so, uh, the, you know, everyone's on board. And when you observe people who are very much after the money, they are those who can be bought. Mm-hmm. So they have to be very careful. Yes. Yeah. I would agree 100%. Um, it's interesting. I uh, got to interview Theo Fleury. He's a uh, National Hockey League, uh, should be an all-star. Um, but he had addiction problems when he was younger. He was uh, sexually abused. Then he was later kicked out of the league for his anger issues. And during the interview, he explained to me that he's now a trauma counselor. He goes around the world. Uh, counseling sex, uh, sex abuse victims. Uh, he was groomed, so he knows the whole process. And when we started the interview, I said, you know, you're very outspoken on Twitter. What's going on here with these lockdowns that you're against, the mass, everything? He said, listen, he goes, it's just abuse, 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 abuse. Yes. I said, by who? I said, who is orchestrating? He said, he said, the government. They're grooming people. He said, all of these people in, in government are victims to the number one most powerful addiction, and it's power. And they don't realize that at the end of the day, they're just in this evolving chain of power that they're just going to be used, dispensed, and spit out later on for somebody else that becomes more useful. And this is the cycle that we're trying to break and expose. That's very, very interesting what you say. I mean, it reminds me of what Meredith Miller, you know, the psych- uh, psychologist, um, said in, in our committee also, that she thinks of this relationship between the population and the government is like, like you're in an abusive, um, you know, relationship. 
and basically you also don't want to you know uh, talk about it and you don't want to believe or like realize oh this is this is real this is happening like my my whatever my husband does these things to me so you want to try to cover up and just want, don't want to admit to yourself that this is like uh, maybe oh he was just in a bad mood that night or so you know and that's why and and maybe i did something wrong to me because i didn't clean enough or something whatever you know but it's it's really it's an abusive constellation it's clear and it's uh, a, people are having a hard time do you know like the german chancellor he was invited to this group how is it called the group not the atlantic group but Bilderberg. Bilderberg. he was there indeed and from then he started his career afterwards mm-hmm. And then he had, he was in Hamburg and he was dealing with the Warburg Bank, which is one of those big banks, financial people who are governing, trying to govern the world. Mm-hmm. And uh, he was there yet and they, they were, it was the problem with, a, with such a tricky finance trick that they get tax money again or twice. Mm-hmm. And he, he was, and now he was. There is an there is an enquete commission about that. He has to he has to tell what he what he did there, because he had contact with them, and he just does not remember. Yeah, I can't recall. I can't. I, can't recall. I, I don't know. You know, if the, if he really negotiated with them and he allowed such things, they would have. The, they could make lots of pressure. I have, and I, now I have this image that they know more about him than we all. And they just can make pressure on him. If you don't obey us, yeah. dear Chancellor, we will tell the people what you did. Mm-hmm. How can such a guy be Chancellor? Yeah. Yeah. He's, he's a puppet. Mm-hmm. Yeah. He's in their hands. Yeah, I, I mean, th- this is the... If, if there's one benefit to COVID, I think, you know, if we reframe it as, as opposed to why is this happening to us, why is this happening for us? Mm-hmm. I think the one great thing is that we're realizing that COVID is not the virus. The virus is, is part of our human condition of people being victim to, to becoming involved in a, in a state of being where, you know, I choose to live my life in a way that it's win-lose. I win, you lose in every transaction. I mean, these are the people who are perpetrating these things on these crimes against humanity against us. Then there are the people like, like you who live uh, by a motto of win-win. Every transaction I do must be win-win. This is why you're out here sacrificing everything. And this is what we're truly fighting. And I think the great thing about COVID is so many people have so many various um, insights into the corruption that's always plagued the world. You know, whether it be the, the medical system, whether it be the financial system, whether it be pedophile rings or whatever. But all of this is being brought to light in COVID. It's just climaxed here and it's brought so many people together. Be careful with win-win. There are many people who make this business win-win, mm-hmm. but who pays is a third one. Mm-hmm. They both win because they, if you have corruption, both win. Yes. But someone else pays. Yes, yes. So win-win is a very problematic thing. It's not enough to, to, to explain, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. I think. Yeah. yeah, that's true. But um, I think it's. Um, I think we should really look like much more in detail into like what's, what's why these people are maybe bribable or you know why they are also under a lot of pressure because it seems that you know I mean I don't like I mean Matthias Desmet says you know they they a lot of them buy into the idol- ideology and I think that's true to some extent you know maybe the, I mean the, the transhumanist or like you know this global change, uh, great reset ideology, but I think there must also be a lot 
lot of other other things going on, like really like money interest and like, you know, maybe they're, they're, they're inflicted in something. You mentioned this, this pedophile rings or something, or like some something they did wrong in the past and now they're being presented, what you said, you know, as the new leader or the new such and such. And then, uh, but this person is has really dirt on his, on his uh, shoes and therefore they can just maneuver him. Mm -hmm. And I mean, do you know anything about this like pedophile or like this, I mean, or like other clubs where they where there should could be problems for for these people that might come to light and that therefore they for me you know I, I I haven't delved into that um, I was exposed a little bit to it by uh, Theo Fleury when he you know I didn't realize the extent of it the, the trafficking he said you can go to the UNICEF website um, and you will see there that a million people a year are, are trafficked and I thought that can't be right, a million people a year. You go on there, it's right there on the front page. So there are so many stories of, of human suffering and, and tragedy uh, and exploitation that you know, I, I've just tried to focus on, on presenting the science of COVID, the data of COVID, and exposing what's happening because this is most immediately in our face right now. And, and hopefully as this comes to light that these other things will happen. But you know, I'm sure there, there are a lot of things going on in terms of that, I mean, look, we saw Jeffrey Epstein go down and how they tried to twist that on Alex Jones when he was recently in court. You know, uh, you know they said, uh, you know, you, you're making allegations against, uh, you know, saying that politicians and, uh, you know, other uh, leading uh, people in the world are, in, in, the, in America, are, are, you know, involved in pedophilia rings. And he looked at me and said, like Jeffrey Epstein? <laughs> you know, it's, the, the continual gaslighting is amazing. And I think this is what we, we have to bring to light are the tricks and the strategies that have always been used to oppress us. And what, so this is one thing I think that's really helped me with my journalism is being a teacher. Mm -hmm. I've learned that, you know, as soon as I went into teaching, the first thing I thought to myself is we don't teach children how to think. Mm -hmm. We teach them what to think. And then we teach them what to think under this guise of critical thinking. But there's no critical thinking. We indoctrinate them into thinking. You know, I, was, I was in a, in a discussion, in a Zoom discussion, with a specialist for for propaganda, for influencing people, for for for, yeah, for making them bad, or for for for, show, for switching them off, and on all this, how to, how to do this propaganda. And there was a specialist, and we had a nice talk, and, and I asked, "What do you guess? You were educated; you can learn such techniques." There are it, yeah, there are places where you can learn it, where you're educated, because the big big uh, PR f firms they need such people, mm -hmm. and uh, so yes, I said many people go there and they do this job, and I asked, what do you guess? How many of them, just now, are are cooperating with this with this the war we now experience, the war against virus? How many people do they engage? How many the percentage of people who are bought to make this? Majority, the majority. There are very few who don't. Mm -hmm. So, do, do yes. you think it's about money? Like, I mean, is yes, that sure. so really yes. buying people? Yes. I mean, okay, yeah, we know from the doctors luring them into vaccination because if they get so much money per shot, and I mean, there's a, a, of course a lot of financial benefits, but um, 
Yeah, I don't know. I think we should really also look into this like language, uh, the language they use and this, this techniques, you know, for the gaslighting. Yeah. Because I've never been exposed to something like this, but I see that it's happening in a, in a very uh, great um, extent. And that, mm -hmm. you know, like twisting around what someone said and then, you know, turning it against the person. Like, I mean, in our, you know, in our uh, circles, basically. Um, um, you know that uh, that we get to get these these tags as being like conspiracy theorists or whatever. You know, yeah. but it's the theory they're presenting us right yeah. in the open. You know, I mean this great reset or something. So we should really look into these these manipulating techniques. Yeah. You know, well, uh, to understand you know, it better. Yeah, it's interesting. I mean, I started reading a book about uh, how it's called persuasion, and it talks about how you know these this guy studied. These, the most successful salespeople in America for two years, followed him around, and he said before they actually pop the question of do you want to uh, buy this product, mm. they've already been persuaded to say yes. Mm. And so he figured out how that works, sure. right? Mm -hmm. And you know, one of the, the oldest techniques is the foot in the door technique, where you know, rather than drop something large, you just say something small, so yes. that because they won't accept the large thing, right? Yes. So they won't positive, accept it. Yeah, a positive approach already. Yeah, and so. You know, we're gonna we're gonna give you vaccine yeah. passports and uh, mandates that we wouldn't accept that. So they need to start with the fear. But it was very interesting that I saw this through our provincial leaders and through Trudeau. We are not going to do the vaccine passports, right? It's too divisive. Then a couple of months later, we're thinking about it now. We're gonna weigh the pros and cons, <laughs> yeah. and then eventually it's like we're gonna have the vaccine passports. The topic was on the table. Yes. It was. It is like a little bit vaccination. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> So it's incredible that way, the, the, these techniques they the that they employ. Oh, in Germany, the same. Yeah. We don't do it. Yes, we think about it, and we have to. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> and so when you, you say that they twist the words, and for me, I don't even see a twisting of words when it comes to the media and the government. I just see outright lies and gaslighting. When I was there in the, uh, at the Freedom Convoy in Ottawa, mm -hmm. um, I spoke about this uh, with someone just recently. It, it, it was incredible. There is viral footage going around at one point of two people being trampled by ho police horses. They just came barreling through to disperse the crowd, trampled over. You saw them in this video being stepped on by the horses, trampled. The Ottawa police that same day puts out a tweet and says, the people that were knocked over by the horses got up and were fine. Okay, lie number one. And then here comes the gaslighting. The gaslighting was, uh, then later, one of the protesters threw a bike at the horses, but the horses were fine. I'm like, my God, there is a, a viral video showing two being, people being trampled. Yeah. One ended up in the hospital with a dislocated shoulder. Yeah. The man who was dragged away, and he was actually shown being dragged away by two police officers, uh, lifeless. We still don't know what's happened to him. Nobody knows where he is. Um, and they have twisted it to the horses were the ones that were attacked. The outright lies. The, for me, the, the whole theme of the Freedom Convoy in terms of fighting the narrative should, be, should have been where's the proof, right? Um, you know, there are people, uh, there, there are people who are um, attacking the elderly citizens of Ottawa. Where's the proof? Uh, I showed yesterday in my slide presentation one of the headlines from the CBC, our version of the, PPC, uh, the BBC, are now public broadcast become state broadcast media. Uh, and they had a headline that said, you know, symbols and uh, symbols and signs of hate being shown at the convoy. And the picture that they have with it, they can't even prove it. The pictures that they showed for that headline were 
one lady standing with a sign that said freedom, another one had a Canadian flag, and the other one said love on it, and the other one said, you know, something like pipelines over masks. It was incredible. There was not one symbol of hate, and the only hate symbols that were there were probably implanted by the government. There was a Confederate flag and a Nazi flag uh, there spotted in the first couple of days, never to be seen again. All you saw there were flags of uh, Canadian flags. You saw uh, Quebec flags, and you saw the number three uh, most seen flag, in my opinion, was the, uh, the bleep Trudeau flags. Um, but, you know, the media, of course, jumped on these two incidences. Mm -hmm. They never showed the follow-up videos of people confronting the guy with the, with the uh, Confederate flag who had a balaclava on so you couldn't see his face, completely masked up, mm -hmm. and said, hey, who are you? As soon as he was confronted, more people kept on saying, yeah, get out of here. We don't want you here. Who are you? The guy just turned away, walked away silently, mm. never to be seen again. Mm. Yeah. Very I mean, old technique. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> and, and it's incredible that, you know, through all yes. the years that, of ages of history that we continue to fall victim to the same things. It works. Yeah. yeah and that's why they keep doing it. Uh, and this is why this, this conference is so incredible, is to, to talk about, you know, again, for me, this is a PR campaign. The only way we win this is through our own PR to expose the truth, you know, repeat the truth often enough so that it becomes the truth again. And again, like you had mentioned, the, the networking is incredible. How do we get this message out? By networking with other people, meeting people in other countries, going through the exact same things. I had people come up to me and say, yeah, the convoy, when you talked about that, is exactly the same here in our country. Just, you know. Uh, having, having journalists everywhere freelancers everywhere in the world, giving, the, giving them the chance to make photos, to report, to ask questions, yes. to make interviews everywhere in the world mm -hmm. and deliver them somewhere, not have one organization like Reuters or I don't know what, how they are called, the big, the big agencies, but have, many, have a network of, of, of good journalists. Yes, decentralized. Yes, decentralized. Yeah. Yes, yeah, so everywhere. Infiltrated that easily. Uh, one last question. The, 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 what's the status now with the, uh, the, the partisan, trucker? Partisan journalism. Yes. Yeah. 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 The, the truckers, <laughs> is there still anything going on? Or? So once the truckers disbanded, the, they tried to get back together and I believe you know, they, they are trying to get something together again, but uh, what's happened now is we've seen the suspension of mandates, not the lifting of mandates. We still have the suspension of mm -hmm. the vaccine uh, uh, passport uh, at the border. Um, uh, so, you know, it's really made it more difficult to make the public aware of what's happening when things are becoming more free, right? It will be blamed that they consume so much gasoline yeah. when they come with their trucks now. Yes. Because this is a problem now. Yeah, this is the new, the climate crisis, right? Such bad people yes. using our gasoline. Yeah, <laughs> delivering <laughs> our food for us using gasoline. Yes. <laughs> so. Would you think that in Canada people um, uh, actually might be willing to go into a climate lockdown? I, I think that's quite unrealistic. I don't think that's so close to the skin that you'd really um, accept that or what's your I, feeling? I really don't know because at this point I, I can't even imagine what people accept after what we've accepted for the last two and a half years. I was speaking with somebody, um, a neighbor, and uh, we were talking a little bit about uh, COVID and I didn't want to go too deep because I don't want to ruffle feathers. And then I said, well, I, I wanted to end it by not going too far. And I said, well, you know, what? at least we have, uh, you know, for the climate stuff, we've got crickets coming down the path. Uh, we'll be eating crickets soon. You know, and I thought he might say, I, I don't want that. But he looked at me and said, you know, he goes, I love crickets. I go, what do you mean? He said, he said, you know, no fat and cheap protein. I'm like, oh my God, he, he's already crisp, falling. Crisp. <laughs> yeah. And you know, Dr. Richard Urso, uh, he actually posted, uh, he tweeted um, a picture of cheese puffs 
and it's already in the food market. I didn't realize this, but it said, you know, on the, the label he circled it, it said sustainable food. And on the back of the cheese puffs, you look at the ingredients, and it said here, uh, ground cricket flour. Apparently, so I told this to somebody, and they said, yeah, they're already selling that in Toronto. Like, wow, how do they get this into the market without us even knowing? And then, you know, the marketing's already happening, and it's already in the food supply. Um, you know, the way forward, it's a, it's a difficult one where, you know, it's going to take every single one of us to wake up as many people as we can to, to fight this. You know? I mean, I, I'm not quite sure if these insects would be really bad for us to eat because, because there are countries My where you where you eat, eat, eat yeah. <laughs> but yes. I mean also other insects you know I mean there are countries where they are part of the normal diet diet or worms or something mm -hmm. maybe yeah. I, I have a hard time imagining that yes, but, 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 you but you see that so I mean it maybe it's not like in general a bad idea but I think it's if it's part of like an agenda you know to also um, I don't know maybe also control the, the food supply because I don't know how who can produce these giant amounts of uh, whatever people, like, you know <laughs> there are people in the world in this world who look at our pig stables on the where the mass pig is produced and they say well how can they eat that how can they eat that those tortured pigs mm -hmm. Well, I mean, that, okay, there's, that, now we're touching on a lot of other issues, you know, I mean, also, like animal, uh, whatever, like, that you don't, it's another very complex topic, but I think it's what we can see, it's like at least some sort of um, activity to control the food supply and our freedom to eat, like, what we want to eat. I mean, also they're, they're restricting what you can do, um, you know, what kind of um, uh, seeds you can use on the, on the, the field mm -hmm. and that you cannot, I think in Germany it's now, that you cannot swap these, um, you know, the old seeds anymore. Seeds, yes. Yeah, and so and that is another thing. I mean, then you have to buy them, you know, then you're dependent and if you don't have any money because you are yeah. disobeying and don't get the digital money, then you can't, uh, you sure, know, yeah. grow your own. Yeah food and, and these kind of things. So How was this movement, we just heard about with Catherine Austin Fitz, that each week, each week you have a different way to, to, to change your behavior. Yes. Don't pay with credit card for one altogether. Let's, let's avoid credit card paying. Or let's, the next thing is just buy your local f uh, food producers. Mm -hmm. Don't go, don't buy food from somewhere. Try to find out where are the food producers in, in your neighborhood, in your, in your, around, your, around your town, or where can you get your food that you know where it is produced. It's a very good initiative. Yeah, I, I think And they will have more such things for, for transparent, transparent living, knowing what you do, being responsible for what you do, yeah. not being dependent on someone who, who sells us something with propaganda, which would lies yeah. for money. Yeah. <laughs> Well, it's amazing on so many levels that global walkout the, for reigniting freedom. Global it's, walkout. Yes, the global walkout where, you know, not only are you regaining those things that you just talked about, but you're also, you're, you're also living the life that you want to have and abandoning the old system. And, and, it's, and it's a very difficult transition. And I love, like, you know, they're rolling it out in baby steps for people. So, you know, manage what you can so that we can opt out and choose the system that we want because it needs to be torn down and rebuilt Right. I'm dreaming of, of, of a region or of a town where the people agree that they help each other when they need help. Because there are so many people and you help the old, the, the sick one, that you don't need big insurance companies, you don't need, need big care, uh, shareholder companies who yeah. buy everything or put the people in a big, big institution. No. 
in Denmark, it's uh, more than 10 years ago, Denmark forbid to build uh, asylums for old people. The community has to keep the old pe their old people at home and try to let them be with the others where they spend their whole life, that they could stay there yeah. and that they feel responsible for them. They yes. will become old too. Yeah. Well, you know, uh, I think the oldest population lives in Japan and I think it's the, uh, the Okanagan people and, you know, several of them live past 100 years old and the reason they say this is, uh, they've studied this at length and they say it's because they have a huge social network. Yes. You, yes. you dine with other people, you live yes. with other people, everything is shared. When someone dies and they, they become a widow, they still have their, their network. I mean, yes. this is unity. This was what the Freedom Convoy was, people helping each other. I won't be lost. Yes, exactly. And this is exactly what they're trying to take away from us by dividing us. Yes. Yeah. You're dependent on us. Yes. If you pay, we'll help you. Yeah. 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 <laughs> yeah it's yes. uh, shareholder capitalism. Yes. You'll own nothing and be happy. And this is, uh, these are things we can produce ourselves. Yeah. So easy. And this is exactly what they're grooming us to do, is to become these dependent people where you stay home and watch Netflix, call Amazon when you need something, and you call uh, Uber, and they will deliver your food so you never have to leave the comfort of your couch. It's just Love so convenient. Guitar. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> exactly. Yeah. Um, yeah, it's an incredible world, but uh, again, you know, you talked before about um, uh, Meredith Miller, I believe, and there's one line that I, I have remembered from what she said that was so important during these times, and she said, you know, about being in a, you have to treat those people who are victim to this propaganda like people in an abusive relationship. Yes. You treat them, uh, you first of all, you have to create boundaries with them, you treat them with compassion, but make sure you have the boundary because if you try to expose that relationship, they will attack you mm. for trying to expose that abusive relationship. And I loved something equally important that she said is that you have to live with people that live in reality. And that is the, the, the bonus of being in these environments where we come together to discuss, create these, form these networks about how to move forward because we live in reality, yes, you know? that's true. Yeah, part of the reason I, I, you know, it was difficult to go back to teaching was to go back into an environment where everyone wants the fourth shot. They want the mask. You know, we got rid of the mask mandates for our students and the teachers were upset and they were calling to have the mask mandates put back in place. <laughs> it's absolute insanity, you know? Yeah, so. I mean, that's why it's really so important also a thing like this, you know, that you can also physically kind of, you know, be with other people who have understood what's going on. Yeah, that's really yeah. such a, that's healing. We are in, in Vienna now and when you go with a, with a train from here to the town, to the city, I heard that in, as long as you are not in the, in the town, in the city in the, of Vienna, but outside, because this belongs to some outside region, when you cross the border to the town, you have to put on a mask. When you leave it, you can put it off again. In the same train, you can put it off again. Wow, yeah, I know, it's crazy. How can the people live with this? Yeah, well, it's, it's like the, the, the lunacy, and I'm just going to call it idiocy of, you know, there's only two airports, I believe, in Canada right now, Ottawa and Toronto, that still require the masks. All Canadian airlines still require the masks. It's crazy. You, uh, you know, I flew back from Bath, England. No masks in the airport, and then you get onto the Canadian plane, you have to put on the mask. And, you know, mm. I'm sitting there, you know, uh, not always wearing it properly, but everyone else is wearing it, and they, they're thinking, you know, this, is, this PPE is saving us from the world's most dangerous uh, virus <laughs> until you're eating. And then, you know, okay, virus, take a break. We're going to eat now and all be happy and keep yes. the masks off. It's just... I take my collected viruses and put them in the pocket. <laughs> yeah. yeah. <laughs> well, 
Then I touched the, the then I touched my neighbor and I, was, I touched the, the the chair of my neighbor with all the viruses on my hand, yes. which I connected with my mask. Yeah. It's such a horrible, such a nonsense. My mask, I, the one of the masks I had, uh, I had to put it in the in the garbage, so I just stuck it in the cup. The flight attendant comes by, and then I pass her the cup, and then she says, "The garbage is right there because she's collecting garbage. She could have just dropped it in there." She says, "Can you put that in a sick bag for me, please?" I thought, what? I said, really? I said, the garbage is right there. And she said, well, we need that to go into a sick bag. I said, when, I, when I do it, please give me some disinfection because I touched it again. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. yeah. you know, you, now you want it to be a biohazard like the World Health Organization has always said. You know, it's, it's a biohazardous waste material and they should be disposed of. Now you want it once. If you would have mask, when you touch it, you, you get color some color which you cannot so you you really can see yes. you touch some where the virus is and then you touch when you, you leave the bus you you hold yourself the grip and you the color is everywhere where you touched yes then you would see what a nonsense it is yeah <laughs> uh, I, this this is a there's actually these little kits when i used to teach kids uh, about germs you can actually get these little fluorescent things where you show the transfer of germs or when mm -hmm. i would teach children how to sneeze i would say listen i just take a big piece of masking tape put it in a ball and put it on my mouth and say look i got germs here i'm going to sneeze this is what happens if i sneeze in my hands i go hachu and i put the, the mask there <laughs> then i say hey johnny come up give me a high five i high five him then he's got the masking tape i say go open the door now and then he takes the door leaves it on the door handle so if people could see these things yes. if we could you know just show them the most basic simple science but yeah. do you know what i found very very telling um, that was that um, uh, uh, they had different uh, set of rules with regards to uh, quarantine in uh, the, the nuclear plants, for instance, or the, um, you know, like the, the you know, these infra, uh, the uh, basically infrastructure, you know, the, the basic, um, what you call this, like, um, I'm sorry, I'm a bit confused today for some reason. Um, like, mm -hmm. so the, uh, the, 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 the the fundamental infrastructure elements, yeah, mm -hmm. like nuclear plants, like uh, like electricity producing yes. plants. So there they said, so um, you should rather not go into quarantine. You know, there was no obligation basically. Mm -hmm. So if if uh, because if there was uh, the the danger that not enough not enough employees would be there, you know, to take care of the plant. So there there was no need that they'd go to quarantine. I mean, this would have needed to be the other way round. Mm -hmm. We would have needed to send everyone who showed a little bit of sign or had like a positive PCR test, like in quarantine, not to, uh, you know, threaten the, the, the functionality of the whole thing, of the whole nuclear plant, you know. Yes. But instead, you keep these people with the really deadly virus around, like continuing to work. So at some point, maybe everyone is sick and dead. Yes. I mean, that doesn't make any sense. So it shows that in, in the areas where it's really crucial, they treat it as it is. Yes. Yeah. No problem. You know, at least no fundamental problem. Yes, yeah, this crippling of, of, of thinking is, that's, this has been the most remarkable thing, you know, like the University of Western Ontario just implemented uh, for the September school year that university students now and staff have to wear masks and have to have a booster. But if you're a donor, if you're donating to the university, you don't have to comply with any of these mandates. It's been revealed, you know, and this was like early on in March 2020 when, you know, we'd have all our government officials and Trudeau and our health ministers and everybody saying, you know, we need to socially distance. So I used to, I'd, you know, to be a good citizen so we don't spread COVID, uh, the, 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 all these reasons why. And then I used to post these little things where I have a picture of them all and then I put a little arrow between them and go two feet between all of them sitting at their podiums, right? <laughs> like, 
how are you paying attention to this? They're telling us to stay six feet away so we can save lives. They're not even two feet apart, right? The, the was, madness. There was a film of the politicians in an airplane when it was still obligatory to have a mask in the airplane, and they, none of them did. Yeah. The journalists, the politicians, they all were freely running around. Yeah, yeah, this is... <laughs> it was the, a big scandal. Yeah, the theater. It's a giant Truman Show, and we really have to make uh, sure that the lights are going to drop off the, the sky so people are going to see what's going on. I mean, tr uh, Truman, at least at some point, realized what, in what kind of situation he lived and was able to break free. I think that's also going to happen here. Well, thanks so much that you were here. It was, I think, very inspirational, and I'm glad to, uh, to know that you are so like immersed in that uh, Canadian and, and scene, international scene. And I think we should definitely stay in touch and exchange information and uh, just another guest, Just another guest who didn't give up thinking. Yeah. yeah. Yes. <laughs> yes. Perfect. Well, thank you guys so much for everything you're doing. And it is fantastic being here having this conversation. And, and this is it. We just, you know, the more we talk, it's exactly what they don't want. The more we talk, we can hopefully wake up more and more people. You know? So thank you. Know. you. Thanks so much. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you very much. Okay, now we have our next guest. Would, would you like to come to us? Yes, of course. Um, yeah. Thank you. We have water here also. Hi. Good that you're here. Yeah, um, maybe it's, uh, could you just introduce yourself a little bit with your background for the audience? Yes, my name is Dan Aston Gregory, and in uh, 2020, uh, after witnessing a growing divide and gulf between what the, mean, the mainstream media were um, covering in terms of the coronavirus outbreak and the underlying reality, the, the bigger that gap became, the more uncomfortable I became. And in uh, August 2020, I recorded a live video just sharing my frustrations. And that video went on to be shared in 24 hours, 5,000 times. It reached 300,000 people. By the end of the next week, it reached over a million people. I was just sharing my frustrations about what I was witnessing in the world. And it seemed to have struck a chord with other people who felt the same, but there was no one speaking into the challenges that they were witnessing. And so. Five years previously to that, I'd learned the skills of how to start a podcast, creating content, and later that year in October, I started the Pandemic Podcast, and I literally haven't stopped since. We recorded 500 plus episodes, Wolfgang, you were on the show as well. Um, uh, we've reached over 15 million people in the last two years, uh, really trying to uncover what has been happening in the world from the data, the science, the politics, the culture, the social, economic impacts and more recently we've launched elevate media to start to look at the systemic issues mm. and a bit like the better way conference we're also looking at how we can elevate ourselves beyond this present moment and start to create systemic change when was it when did we talk about 2020 yeah? i think we spoke in early 2021 yes yes, yes. Uh, and i I'd, I'd discovered your work prior to actually launching the show when it came to mm -hmm. uh, some of your previous initiatives challenging situations mm -hmm. like this so i knew that i had to speak with you about you know someone had already seen this pattern occurring and there's a history to this that we need to to look at and that was so important that we were able to discuss that and uh, so in england there's a lot of 
I mean, it seems sort of, I always had the feeling that the upper range of your society is a pretty close chop. I mean, you go to like certain colleges or like, uh, like whatever to, to Eton, Eton and to, um, um, Eton to, to these, um, um, and to other universities like Cambridge and, and Oxford and also, I mean, do you see anything moving up there? Or is that, I mean, with regards, is anyone from that kind of, you know, crowd, like, or nobility or whatever, coming out and saying, well, we have some issues here, or is this... Not anyone of significant note. There will be some, but they're perhaps not using their credentials. And of course, you know, those colleges, Eton, Oxford, Cambridge, they are the bedrock of British politics and have been for a long time, very much intrinsically linked with the establishment in the UK. And of course, we've seen a slow creep through institutions of what we're witnessing today, and that's evident also within the Oxbridge. I don't know so much, I haven't looked at Eton in terms of its relationship with what we're seeing here. There will be inevitably some graduates who have spoken out. I know that there's been some uh, higher echelons of the political system who have likely graduated from these universities who have spoken out, but there hasn't been there's not a rebellion <laughs> against the institutions. Um, certainly some of the imperial colleges, which are very closely linked with the data, the modeling, they've been intrinsically connected to the overall picture that we've witnessed in the United Kingdom. But even that said, there have been a few dissenting voices that have come from places like imperial, but it's certainly in the minority, it's rare. Mm -hmm. um, but I do think there's a problem with academia. I think it's a big, it's a big problem that we're facing. Mm -hmm. Um, there was a fantastic podcast that I listened to last week which talked about the lack of accountability in, in uh, the academic institutions. Yeah. And there really has been no accountability. It's very close to the question of who's financing those <laughs> in universities. Exactly, exactly. Uh, you know, and why would one bite the hand that feeds? Um, you, know, it's, you have to look at these incentive structures and realize that there are systemic problems beyond media. Yes. It's, it's, it's a holistic problem. Beyond science, too. Beyond science, indeed. And what surprises me is how far beyond science it is. Uh, I studied economics at university, and in the last mm -hmm. few months, I've looking at some of the corruption within the economic theory. You know, people take, you know, they, they, they treat economics and physics and mathematics with this different lens, but it still suffers the same German, institutional German, problems. You hardly become a professor if you did not show that you prostitute can you yet that you can prostitute your institution well mm. so that you can that you're very successful in, in in getting money from sponsors yes if you can do this they like you indeed and, and the, the the minister of culture who are responsible they were gathering some years ago already long before COVID, mm. he said, we have to find a regulation, we have to make some laws that those professors who are going for sponsorship, that they cannot be punished. Mm. We have to change the laws, yes. that it is allowed to do that. Mm. Mm. Yes. So, so the, whole, the whole thinking and the whole moral and ethical framework of science has changed and was explicitly changed, was changed by, the, by politicians too. Mm. Mm. And it's, I, yeah, I, I, I see that as a result of years of the growth of public-private partnerships where yes. the influence of the corporations influence the regulations. This is the euphemism they use. Yes, but, but within that I see a great opportunity actually um, because... Yeah. But the responsibility has to be clear.
And if you have a public task, it's the public who's responsible and who has the money, our money. Mm. And what they do, they have to show us. We have to know what they do with our tax money, with our money. Yes. And this is, they, can, they can just make a contract with some private firm. Mm. Mm. And the private firm can do some work the administration is not able to. Yes. But they, the responsibility is they are interested in our money, they are interested to do our to a health system, do science, and they are interested. We trust them. Yes. We say, you are a scientist, your university, yes. who learns, who goes studying in your university, he gets an exam and we believe that he learns the right thing we need. Mm -hmm. So we entrust you all this. And if they, if they have the money and if they control it, it's okay. But if the private partnership is the other way around, Mm -hmm. If there is some private com company who says, no, not this, not that, please do this, then we lost it. It's a huge problem. They just use our money for their interests. Yes, yes. There's no transparency. There's no, no openness. And there's a really powerful example from the UK from the recent months. There's a very small uh, organization. It's a two-person organization based in Cornwall in the southwest coast of the United mm -hmm. Kingdom. Um, they were awarded a multi-billion, multi-billion uh, pound contract to administer the uh, net zero program, the, the climate change program in the United Kingdom, a, a tiny organization. Mm -hmm. Now, of course, being fully transparent, they don't have full control over the budget, but how did that organization be, become selected? How will they use the money? That's such a large volume of money. <laughs> Where's the accountability? Where's the scrutiny? And even amongst the media, where is the scrutiny? We're talking a serious sum of public money over the years. So the whole, pro but, but there's also there's an, there's also increasing public apathy. You know, it, it's even on a local jurisdiction level. Thinking about what your local council or local authorities are spending their money on. Mm -hmm. uh, a friend of mine was telling me the other day that, that uh, of a, there's a huge amount of wasted funds when it came to public car parks, and no one even on a small scale, people don't have that awareness. You know, there is a there is a big gap between this. There, if there is competition and you have corruption and you give someone some advantage and the other one the competitor doesn't get it then the competitor will say oh, oh this is corruption yes because i want to have this job mm. but if it's public money and it is spent like that there's no one there's no accountability and no. this this what you just described this two people uh, organization i mean that i mean that would now I would think maybe there's some sort of kickback scheme there that these people, if they're such a small organization, maybe they were picked by someone and then, you know, you have like a sort of, maybe they give the money to other organizations and people are involved that you maybe don't want to have involved there. I mean, that sounds like a very, very fishy kind of thing because wouldn't you for such a huge amount of money, wouldn't you like to give it to an organization that has already shown that it's able to deal with a lot of a, a bigger team and with a lot of media campaigns and whatever uh, how, how, whatever they want to do with the money. But I mean, wouldn't you like to have like a track record and yes. a larger organization? Absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. Mm -hmm. I, I think the the relationships that lead to these contracts obviously need scrutiny as well. Cronyism has been a very big problem within the COVID story. You know, it's very, very clear now that a lot of the contracts that were undertaken during COVID-19 were friends of government, personal friends and family of government ministers. Really? Now, I, I, yeah, I can't speak around this net zero uh, contract without further scrutiny, but certainly with 
the COVID, there's been some mass, mass development. All kinds of uh, contracts were given to friends, close friends and family, even if they had no experience whatsoever. Uh, you know, there was a mask manufacturer who, they weren't a manufacturer, they sourced it overseas and they took, took the money. You know, it's, it's, a, it's a very corrupt system and there's no scrutiny. And now we're in a cost of living crisis and people are worried about where their money's going to go, yet billions has been wasted of public money and silence. And what is the, um, the state of awareness of the people in England? Because there's, um, you know, you have, I think, one of the best databases for like the vaccine injuries. Yes. And, um, it, and so there should be somewhat more of awareness or like uh, how is that uh, trans transported or like uh, reported about in the media and how do people react? Yes, uh, there is, the media has, has barely scratched the surface uh, mm -hmm. when it comes to vaccine adverse injuries. And I think that's putting it politely. Um, there has been little to no coverage. Mm -hmm. um, and it's, it's, it's almost treated as a taboo subject. Even today, the BBC had put something out talking about how uh, they were using carrots. I don't know the full story yet, but they were, they were minim they're diminishing any story that can be dis dis uh, deemed as harmful anti-vax content. Mm -hmm. And you know, it's, it's, to me, it's gaslighting the victims of um, of these uh, protocols and you know that has a last, lasting psychological impact on the individuals that have been affected and I think that's probably the greatest tragedy out of this alongside of the fact that the hospital system the education that the, the, the uh, medical system is not tr not taking it seriously either so when I think about the problem yes there's a huge problem that the media aren't covering it but the fact that people who are suffering cannot get support either practical, uh, physical, um, health care support. Many of them have been so injured that they cannot work, they've lost livelihoods, and there's no support mechanism for these individuals. So yes, it's a huge problem that there's a lack of awareness, and I think that may feed into the broader problems, but it's, it's a deafening silence. Um, and again, we speak to the same problem, who controls the media? You know, Plato said, who tells the stories rules society and uh, how we see the world is shaped by the stories that we see in the world and the media determines in many ways how we see reality. So rather than saying who tells the stories shapes society, we can say who runs the media shapes society. Mm -hmm. And we know that that is a big problem when it comes to vaccine injuries in particular. I have a special question because you you observe the discussion in UK very well, and um, there was this discussion about so many cases of hepatitis with small children. Yes, and I didn't read anything about this in the last weeks. Is there is this discussion just stopped? Did it stop? Did you did you hear anything about this anymore? Not even a bubbling. It's there is there is. I have first-hand experience of some of the. Uh, health problems that children are facing. I'm a new father, uh, so we surround ourselves with new parents, mm -hmm. and there's a huge r rise of illness, both in terms of some, you know, normal latent illnesses that remain yeah. uh, background. Uh, there's a huge rise in the intensity of periods of illness, so people are getting Ill sicker for longer, more frequently. All of these things have come as a result, I believe, of the policies that we've been through the last couple of years. But again, there is no conversation. 
There is no when conversation I, about when, it. When it came up with the hepatitis, it could not be, it could not be um, just hidden because there were two babies, they had to be transplanted, liver transplant, because yes. of autoimmune uh, hepatitis. Yes. And uh, they, they were not vaccinated. Mm. The babies are not vaccinated. Yes. The small children are not vaccinated. Yes. But the parents may be vaccinated. Yes. yes. And in Great Britain is the state which used the most AstraZeneca vaccines. Mm. And they, are, they, are, they have vector viruses. And I got the and they were adenoviruses were found in the in those babies who, who were seriously ill with hepatitis, yes. a special sort of adenoviruses. Yes. So I immediately thought, oh, how those adenoviruses? How could they damage those newborn babies? Mm. What's with the parents? Did they get some vaccine from AstraZeneca? Yes. And I was looking in the British Health and in the British uh, in, in the records of, of the National Health Service who were making a plan to, to examine all those cases. Mm. They didn't even have the question whether the parents are vaccinated and with what. Yes. They just avoided yes. this topic. Yes. yes. Incredible. Incredible. Yes. Complete aversion. aversion. You know, it's, there's, there's, there's no scrutiny whatsoever. Uh, and, and there is the, I saw now, I, yesterday I looked it up and uh, there's the fourth uh, report on it. And they did not, they did not start, they did not yet. It wasn't, it's not a topic, we should make it public. Yes. We should ask this question. Mm. What about the parents? Is there shedding perhaps? Yes. Can it be, why, why did you exclude this? Why do you exclude this? Well, it's also breastfeeding Those parents. Those parents might be, might be, might be get this, this virus. They say this virus does not multiply, this does not, uh, it, it does not, uh, it's not able to be, to be infected. Other people cannot be, they say it. But how did they find out? Mm. Yes, yes, where is the burden of proof? Yes, yeah. and so we, we, I think this is a very, very important question. There are hundreds of children damaged with hepatitis, mm. a very severe case of hepatitis. Mm. There, are, there, were, there were hundreds of new babies in the intensive care who were not vaccinated, but this never happened before. It is new and it started yes. with the vaccinations. Yes, yes. Yes, all of these peculiarities of the It started this, the this phenomenon yes. of young children having autoimmune hepatitis with adenoviruses, yes. and f the, which were found in the blood. Mm. This started with the, with, the with the vaccination campaign. Yes. And you, this is the first thing you have to, have to look. What's with the parents? Did they get this? Mm. It I, was not, they did, nobody put this question. There's no question and there's no, there's no method to rule out or rule in the possibility of any eventuality. There's no examination of what is leading to this. When you see an anomaly such as this, surely one of the first questions you'd be asking is why is this occurring and how is this possible? The only, the only thing they said, oh, don't use uh, AstraZeneca so much anymore. Well, this is what happens, you know, there's, even if there is a, a, an observable harm, the way it's dealt with the way that the AstraZeneca vaccine was withdrawn if you watch the press conference yes. the language they use they won't go anywhere near to accepting responsibility for harm if I was an attorney in, in, in Great Britain or I would take this I would just sue AstraZeneca mm. if my baby would have a, such a hepatitis and would you, you can you can go I I was um, I was working for an attorney in Ireland he was again with pandemics I, I made some I, I explained something for, for this, for, the, for their uh, trial 
And um, so there were 80 parents with narcolepsia children mm. after this pandemic vaccination. They went, went together and uh, they were fighting. This, this attorney was representing them and they, got, they made some negotiation with Glaxo and they got money from the state. Or I, I don't know the exact result, but there was something going yes. on. Yes. And now, if there are, in, in, I think in, there were 500 in the European uh, register, there were 500 cases registered. Mm. of children, young children and babies with hepatitis and it was there were coming new cases all yes. the time. Yes. So how many are there now? Wow. In uh, most of them in, in UK. Mm. Mm. All, although UK was because it's no longer a member of the European Union. That's correct. Yep. They didn't show the numbers in, in this in Stockholm in uh -huh. Europe. Yes. Course. Of UK, yes. but you can see you you could really see that where AstraZeneca was used mm. most, there was a correlation between this. Yes, yes. Uh, all of the, all of these patterns are just just been completely ignored, and that for me is the greatest challenge of our time. But I agree with you in terms of taking legal action. Um, there's a there's a member of Parliament in the UK, Sir Christopher Chope, who I had the pleasure of interviewing. Mm -hmm. He is fighting for changes in the vaccine injury compensation scheme, the vaccine mm -hmm. damage scheme, mm -hmm. because the definition is limited to, uh, uh, it's an age old, it, the, the definition of industrial harm is essentially being used, which was used at a time where in the factories people would lose limbs or they would... Yes. I, would, I was, when I was in the Council of Europe, I contacted Paul Flynn. He was a Labour parliamentarian. Yes. And he continued this work with the swine flu, with pandemics and yes. so on. Yes. And we worked together very, very effectively. It was very good. Very powerful. So I think I would, it would be very good to have a parliamentarian who has the right to ask questions, to yes. question things. Yes. And to say, to, to go to the National Health Service and to say, why don't you put this question? Yes. But he's pushing very hard because the, 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 to, to qualify for compensation, you need to be materially injured. But of course, many of, you know, hepatitis, there's other times of in, injuries that are occurring sure. that yes. are not yes. necessarily life-threatening, but they're life-altering, but yes. they won't receive compensation. Yes. So he's really someone that's pushing you know, hard on this. They say that the myocarditis and that the heart problems, that they are just for, for some short time and afterwards it's better. They don't know. Yeah. They don't know. They don't know. No. 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 And how is the, big, uh, the, the push, or big is the push to go after like, people like you, like, you know, to censor these or silence these voices? What are the terms they're using in England for you? I mean, is this also a conspiracy theorist or is it like, I mean, do, are you also confronted with the Holocaust denier um, reproach, or is this? Uh... Uh, yeah, so there's obviously some universal terms that have been mm -hmm. agreed on a global basis. So, anti-vaxxers, conspiracy theorists, far right—they're the usual ones. Mm -hmm. Holocaust deniers haven't come up so much. Uh, it will come up in extremes. Mm -hmm. uh, it's it's fascinating to, to just the, the blanket use of far right, for instance. There are some very classically left-leaning broadcast, alternative media broadcasters in the UK who get branded far-right, and it's laughable because they are, they are, yeah. I was the vice president of the socialist. Right, exactly. <laughs> so the, the definition of far-right and far-left, it's so confusing. So all of these terms are still used. And it's just classic ad hominem attacks, you know, attacking people's character. There's no discussion of evidence it's all about the label and we know from a psychological perspective once someone has a label 
they're discounted as an authority. And it's been a technique that's been widely used around the world, as we've seen, to discredit any alternative viewpoints or critique of the narrative. So yeah, it's, a, it's become a universal language. But what, what I think is also more concerning, I don't have proof of this, but we've obviously seen people being deplatformed, censored. And I have a suspicion that there is almost a global blacklist mm -hmm. because we're seeing people shadow banned across all platforms. Mm -hmm. So normally when you get a, a ban, you'll get a notification. You know, if I, in my first channel on YouTube was completely deplatformed. Um, we had 5 million views, 100 episodes. We talked about Ivermectin, game over. But we were told about it. We were sent a notification, your channel is gone. Mm -hmm. <laughs> um, so we get that across the platform. So you get a notification that you've been banned and it usually tells you the term of the ban and how long you're going to be unable to post for. Mm -hmm. But what we're witnessing amongst those who are tackling these issues is the reach that they are gaining across all platforms, even outside of bans and censors, is dwindling. And that cannot be simply a function that people have lost interest, because I think there are more and more people than ever before now asking questions. Yes. So why is it those who are prominent voices are seeing their reach curtailed, even outside of bans? I think there is some sort of global blacklisting occurring that is preventing people from gaining traction on the main social platforms. I can't verify that, but I have a suspicion based upon... Well, yeah. I mean, did you know, like here for, for Oval Media, who, who do the, uh, our transmission here, yes. it's interesting that they got, um, uh, you know, like um, YouTube um, cancelled their, their channels, but not only for the, the German branch um, of, of Oval Media, but for like Italian, French branch at the same time yes. with completely different content yes. in it. You know, like none of the videos, I think in France there was not even one video from the German channel on it. So, I mean, why would you have immediately in both channels and in a third channel you'd of like various companies, you know, you'd have the same, I mean, there's not the same content, there's no reason, you yes. know, there cannot be this one video that was like the overkill or something Absolutely. so it's very strange it, it, it seems to be like a concerted effort yes um, so the, I, I think it's maybe especially important uh, you know come fall uh, now that maybe the measures are going to be reintroduced or some new whatever monkey um, monkey snake, uh, snake uh, pox are going to come up, who knows, whatever, something new. And so it's maybe really very important to control the, um, the you know, the descending voice. Yes. I mean, also with the monkey pox, I mean, I also have, don't have proof for that, but I mean, we, the, you know, the, uh, <laughs> the opponents, their opponents kind of immediately hopped onto the topic. I'm, I'm sure in England someone else did that too and said, well, that's not really, I mean, is this really monkey pox? Is this like covering maybe some vaccine injuries, mm. whatever? So there were a lot of questions asked like very straight in the beginning and I think maybe there was also part maybe also other reasons yes. played a part but why it, it, it didn't fly I mean the monkeypox clearly didn't fly mm. I mean mm. do you have any um, um, because we always felt it's like a an um, you know the wording, the the terms, this agenda, this like PR agent, uh, PR agenda that comes from an English-speaking country, because that's what we think. Because the terms are so very um, foreign to our language. I mean, this like flattening the curve, social distancing, and all that. You know, because better, 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 better,
you know that doesn't mean the same in in uh, in german mm -hmm. you know it's it's like like socially like mingling and these kind of things you know so it must come from a from such a source do you have any idea like no but i think it's a very that's a very smart distinction because you're right certain terms in the english language when translated to other languages don't have the same meaning and i think that's very clear i mean flatten the curve has been used in the energy crisis now talking about energy lockdowns effectively yeah, so sure, it's yeah. um recycling. They're, they're recycling the language and it's becoming normalized in in our daily dialogue the origin of such language how do we find i don't know i mean it's interesting i would be interested to do some there are some online tools where you can kind of search the origin of certain, the, trend, the, the trends of certain words. Mm -hmm. So you, you can try to look for the earliest articles where things like Build Back Better have been used. It'd be very interesting. But of course, we know that can also be concealed. We, can, we could also make some, have some ideas how to, how to brand things we want to transport to public. Yes. And to use the same, the same words. Yes. Not, not hundred different words for one and the same thing. Yes. But try to find out good words everyone recognizes. Yes. So I think it's, it's a normal technique of, of, uh, of rising awareness. Yes. And we have to use this too, I think. Well, definitely. I mean, the principles of influence now have been utilized through, you know, behavioral science, marketing, advertising, you know, since the days of Bernays, you know, the godfather of PR, if you will. You know, the, the, the modern understanding of how to use language and to communicate and to use simple forms of language. There are tools and techniques that we can also learn. I, I shared in my talk here at the conference that really in the new media, we have to set a new standard mm -hmm. because we have nudge units are trying to nudge us towards mm -hmm. certain behaviors. I don't want to create a reactionary, I don't want to be part of a reactionary problem where we create the same issue in reverse, where yeah, we're manipulating people's minds. Yeah. I want people to come to conscious awareness. You know, for instance, they call it, in Germany, they call it Querdenker, someone who thinks across. It's like a barrier. Right. It stops society to, to kind of go to future anymore. We are just a, an obstacle. Yes. Yes. And we're against. Mm. It's not true. No. We are a parallel movement. Yes. And yes. If, you, if you speak about parallel movement, the others are one line and we are one line. Yes. So yes. let's have competition. <laughs> yes, well, it feels like that now. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I, but I think history shows us it's interesting. When we're so in the present moment, we often fail to zoom out and see the bigger picture. And I've spent a lot of time this year really zooming out and looking at the cycles that we go through, through history, mm -hmm. economic, political, social, cultural. And what we're experiencing now is actually, it feels new to us because in our lifetime perhaps we've not seen it at this magnitude. And I know you've done work in the scope of pandemics. You've seen things like this in your lifetime. I, I saw it during my lifetime, but actually the scale of which this is happening now I think is new for all of us. It's funny, there has never been a pandemic in this world, never. Mm. Not even one. The birds flew, the swine flew, just a normal flu. If you see all the, it never has been. And this now is the biggest fake. Where is the pandemic? But it comes back to what it we're saying. It is an invention, this pandemic. It's language, it's semantics, it's meaning, yes. it's meaning making. It's, it's a picture now yes. with, which is in our head. There is possibility of a pandemic. Okay, there is always pandemic because yes. the viruses are always everywhere. Yes. They yes. go with the planes, the million passengers 
flying around the world, they trans all they tr transport viruses, yes. cells, and there are weak people who are get ill. Okay, this, so if you call this a pandemic, yes, why not? <laughs> well, it creates a certain condition. We are all pandemists. <laughs> yes. <laughs> but what this, this, this uh, threatening thing, pandemic, it's just a construction that yes. medically, epidemiologically, never happened. Mm. Yes. It's incredible. But it shows how our meaning is created. And I think this is important because Professor Desmet, when he talks about the conditions of mass, mass formation, the lack of meaning and purpose, the background free, uh, the free floating anxiety, these are background conditions that are playing out. So yeah. we, that's why we become more susceptible to flatten the curve or the language that's used. There's such a struggle now against him. And, and I, I think he, what he says is very, very good, very important, yes. because it's, it's, the, it's the ground on which this grows. Indeed. He's explaining us why such things are possible. Yes. And the others say, oh, no, you're just hiding something. There are criminals. You have to speak about those criminals who yes. use this possibility. Yes, yes. It's not, there is no contradiction. There's no... no. No, one is thinking in a, in a way you, like the police does, find the criminals, yes. punish them. Yes. And he, he blames the other one who tries to explain the, the, how this, how this de can develop, how Indeed. crimes are possible. Yes, exactly. And this is it's not a contradiction. No, it's not. And now they are polarizing. They, yes. they kill it. Divide et impera. Yes, yes. This is after it. This is behind it. Yes. But we should really look at these techniques. I mean, I just mentioned that in the other interviewer, you know, like really look closely into that, like the gaslighting thing, because I think it's it's a trick, you know, that it's like a, like a David Copperfield, I mean, doing this and that, and then boom, he has the cards here or whatever, I mean, yeah. doesn't, I mean not yeah. David Copperfield yeah. himself, but like the magician. And, you know, once you see through it, once we can see what are these gaslighting techniques, they use maybe an anchor, yeah. you know, like a small thing that's maybe there's a, a, a tiny grain of truth in it, you yes. know, and then they blow it up or like give it a different meaning, turn it around. I mean, it's it's a very um, interesting way to communicate and, and because it's not like normal people communicate, we have a hard time understanding yes. it. Yeah. Well, I think it's so important. The way the mind works, it's always filtering, distorting, deleting, generalizing. And there's the famous um, example where they had uh, the people playing basketball, and whilst they're playing basketball, throwing balls to each other, the gorilla goes across yeah. the stage, and people don't see the gorilla the first time. But once you've seen the gorilla, you see it every time. Yeah. So I think that's the key here for us, is once people are aware of the techniques and how they're being used, you'll see it every time. And that's, that becomes a counterforce and neutralizing. Yeah, if, you, uh, if you want to run away with some billion or millions, and you make the discussion about the, 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 one, the waiter who just stolen 20 euros. Mm. And you say, this is a scandal. Yes. Yeah, you just fix the people on, on the small things. Yes. To, to just, to have, if you, you shape the discussion about that. Yes. And we really want to find out where those 20 euros are now. Yes, yes. And in, in the meantime, you took the whole thing and you make a big, you make a big, big, yes. big you reach that nobody speaks about it anymore. Indeed. But I think it's important because this is, this is going back to the kind of big picture piece, the zooming out. Some people are better, better equipped to have the, look at complexity and look at the bigger picture and see the, the bigger challenges. But it doesn't mean that we did, don't pay attention to the individual crimes. We, we still, we must do both. But if we only look at the individual crime, that becomes our focus, then we don't see all the things Yes, and there are much... specialists 
to make us focus on things exactly. they want. Yes, indeed. They are specialized. They yes. have learned it. Yes. They know how to win with such tricks. Yes, indeed. And the they own the distribution channels, and it goes back to what I said yes. at the beginning about Plato and who tells yes. the stories, rules the world, and that's the challenge we face. There was someone with a flag I don't like. <laughs> In this demonstration with, yes. a, with some hundred thousand people, there was this flag. Yes. And we all speak about this flag. Yes. No one questions who put them there. Why are they there? You know, we, I was at a demonstration in the United Kingdom and there was, there was, uh, I saw some violence for the first time. And I've been to lots of demonstrations. And I saw that you, the, you, you get to know the people who go to the marches and demonstrations. There's, there's almost a caricature in a way. We, we become recognizable. The people doing the violence, they were not with us. No one had seen him throughout the entire day. It was a plant to correct the story. Yes. This is a violent yes. protest. Yes. Yes. And even, even though, it, even if it hadn't been a plant, it was such a small fraction of a gigantic protest. But that's the thing we zoom in on. There are small crimes, yes. Of course. But there are big ones There's too. much bigger ones, <laughs> yes. But they become so normalized they don't even get seen as crimes. It's just how life is. Oh, it's just how things are. Mm. We can never change it. We can change it. Just it's also so unbelievable. I mean, that's, the, that's another yeah. thing. You just can't believe it, you know, yes. that it's these millions or it's these billions or, yeah. or like even more. And that, uh, you know, what you mentioned, this corruption thing, that you have all these people surrounding the decision makers who then uh, grab the money. We know that from Poland, you know, with this like weapon dealer uh, who's, I think, was in cahoots with, uh, I think it was the, even the prime minister or the, the health minister or so. And he had, um, you know, he has sold like these... Uh, inhalation tools like but malfunctioning or not at all functioning for a giant amount of money I think 30 oh, 30 million yeah. euros and then he ran off and and you know also one thing that's really interesting that guy ran off and there was an international warrant and um, so then for a few days the warrant was um, kind of uh, you know like um, lifted and that's when he could like do right. these things, run off and blah, yes. blah, blah, hide his, hide his tracks. And then, or he, un unfortunately, he died in Bulgaria or some other place. And uh, you don't know, maybe he's now with a new face in, in yes, Bolivia or who yeah. knows, you know, like yeah. it's very strange and it's all connected. And it seems to be like a giant, uh, Johnny money-making machine for a lot of people. And, yes. You know, of course they, then if they, if you then, you know, enroll yourself in something like that, then you're obviously also bribable for other things. So yes. it's like, a, you know, there's no way out for these people. If they say, I mean, you have to have a lot of courage then to say, okay, maybe I did make a mistake, but it's still very, um, this is even more toxic than what I did. And hey, yeah. I'm going to come out and I take the consequences, whatever. But like, um, uh, look at this yes. uh, stuff that's going on. We all and make mistakes, but would we stay, if we say yes, this was a mistake, we are free again. Mm, indeed. Yes. Well, this plays into the challenges we face, the human condition. And once the moral compass is corrupted, it's very difficult to restore, restore that without conscious action. And then you have the other side, which is the systemic problem. And people often look at the two things as separate, the human psyche and the systems. Yeah. Well, the system perpetuates the psyche and the psyche perpetuates the system. So we have to break the patterns in either. They're intrinsically linked. We can look at them individually, That's right. but the system may corrupt, but then the psyche may corrupt the system. And that is the greatest challenge. But I do think we can break the pattern, but... It's so good that we speak about such things finally. Mm -hmm. We did not before. Mm -hmm. Indeed. We did not. Mm -hmm. There were a few people speaking about, uh, like, uh, 
in, in Harvard, there was some guy, Lessing, he was called, he was speaking about institutional corruption. He did some very good lessons there. I was following him in, uh, I don't know, 10 years ago. Or so. mm. And this was very good. Yes. And it was, it was key, it was a key topic. Yes. And then it was gone. Yeah. Mm. <laughs> yeah. And now it's such a, it's such a, a, a very important discussion and we have, we have to get sensibilized, we have to, have to feel when such things happen, we have to speak about it. Yes. It doesn't happen, otherwise it will always happen again. Yes. They will use the trick, if we show that, oh, this is trick number 19 you use now, <laughs> you do it, we know it, and so, and this, we can, we can try to just to recognize it very, very early and yes. to have the countermeasures against such things, such development. Well, you'd hope so, but, uh, you know, I know that there are a lot of people in Nuremberg for the 75th anniversary and... Were you there? I couldn't make it to that. I'm a, like I mentioned I'm a new, new father, so uh, mm -hmm. traveling at the moment with a little baby is a little more challenging than usual. That <laughs> um, <laughs> um, I had friends there and followed the story very closely, but again, it's showing that we don't always remember. And the fact that we have, the fact that life is observable in repeat cycles, economic, political, social, the fact that we forget every single time, you know, the human mind, we, 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 we we evolve, yes, there's a, there is a general upward trajectory, but we still go in these loops mm -hmm. and they're predictable patterns. I, I gave a talk recently about economic cycles and I, I, I said, here's what normally happens at this, this stage of an economic cycle, step by step. And I said, how many people right now see these things likely to unfold? Mm -hmm. Like what? Well, for instance, now we're in the United Kingdom, we've reached the point where we had a peak of an economic cycle. So at the peak of an economic cycle, there's an expectation that things will always continue to grow. We think, we think the market will improve, so people invest, they borrow, they borrow. And when they can no longer borrow more, they continue to print money. We see massive printing of money. What happens when you print money? Well, you see inflation. What happens when you see inflation? Countries then start to borrow money from overseas, poorer countries. When you get inflation, where, where, where inflation is occurring and the cost of living, uh, the standards of living are not deteriorating for the many, it, there's, there's general uh, civility. But once you reach that peak of the, bit of, 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 the, of the peak of the cycle, it doesn't take long for the wealth inequalities to grow. Mm -hmm. And what happens then when the wealth inequalities grow and the standard of living drop for a proportion of society, and right now we used to talk about the lower echelons of society economically, they call it the precariat. Now, this, the bottom 60%, we refer to it as the bottom 60%, mm. meaning the majority. So the middle class is now feeling it as well as the lower cl the classes. I, I don't like to use these class terms, but to, to, to make it simple. So now, when people feel there's a generalized loss in standard of living, and we're seeing that at scale, you start to see conflict. It only happens when you, on, on the descendancy of the economic cycle, when you've reached the peak and you're now into contractionary. So we've seen those contractionary movements and we've seen the same printing of money, the inflationary behavior, mm -hmm. the civil resistance. All of these things are predictable patterns once they reach a certain yeah, point. Yeah, just beware of those models because they are circles. They are, well, they are. like this. Yes. No, they are not. There is time. There is time. And these are spirals. Yes. 
they spiral because the the the, circ the circumstances change the the technical possibilities to manage all these things they change yes. so if you come to the same problem again maybe you're there are new things that you did not know before so i think it's good to, to have some to see some circles and to see some connections this goes like that but we have don't have to forget the the time x that the the acts of time. Yes. Just, the, the figure of spiral is in nature everywhere. Yes, it is. It's with growth everywhere. Yes. You see a snail? Yes. <laughs> yes. It's true. Yeah, I see that. Um, but it's even interesting then, even having the awareness of those patterns, people then try to create counter patterns, but it, forgetting that that is also what happened in part, history. Part of it. <laughs> part of it, which creates that spiral. Yes, so yes sure. It's a lot of it is predictable when you zoom out far enough. Yes, the circumstances change, but I think there's, in the modern world, there's almost, uh, Ray Dalio is a, a, an investor and an economist. His theory is on this. What is the most important thing and what changes, ha has changed science most is that the possibility of observing changed. Yes. Not the sun was still moving the same way and the earth was moving the same, but suddenly someone started to observe it differently and suddenly the world was a ball suddenly there was the planet system and, yes. and everything was changed but it didn't change it was just the way we thought about it that changed yes yes indeed and that's important um, and when we start to look at things you know we can look at the same thing from a different angle and a different perspective yes. and see totally different things what you see from my laptop is completely different from what that i see exactly. if we should we could have a big discussion how the <laughs> laptop looks like yes yes and the person who manufactured it would have a totally different view as well <laughs> yeah. but we don't we don't include those views when it comes to yeah. big, big news stories I was wondering, because uh, Catherine Ostenfitz, like in the uh, last session, has mentioned that she believes that there's a lot of like subliminal messages out there. Do you think that could be the case? Has anyone in England ever looked into such thing, maybe on the news or like some other uh, outlet? I don't know of any conscious work on subliminal messaging, but it's... Or even waves or sounds or like whatever, like these kind of things. She thought there was a lot of like influencing yes. such way with... Also with physical and acoustical signals. Acoustical and, um, radiation, yeah. I mean, like, like electromagnetic waves well, or whatever going on. I think on. we now have the tools to examine those things. So the fact that we're raising the question is the important first starting point because we can start to examine to see if that is occurring. Um, but even if you think more broadly, uh, the techniques, visual auditory techniques, that can also be used to persuade, and we can't rule them out, but we can't also yeah. say...
and says it's a pig, and someone say, writes beneath it goat. Yes. You know, I mean, it's the same thing. Yes. And and people say, oh, it's a, it's a goat. Yeah, but that to me is the beauty of live streaming and new media because. I mean, I've done that. I, I've been outside the BBC building in mm. London during a protest saying, watch the news tonight. Later on today, the BBC will tell you, even though we're actually outside their offices, yeah. they will tell you that there were hundreds or maybe thousands of people. And I take my camera and I do a 360 and I walk around and I say, well, let's even just start here. Let's count how many people are in my near vicinity. And you start to use your imagination about how many people are filling this square. <laughs> Trafalgar Square in London, we know the capacity is around 40 to 50,000 people. So if you take a shot from the uh, uh, Nelson's Column and you can see that the square is full, you know that there's 40 to 50,000 yeah. people there. It, the numbers may not be exact, but, but you get my point. And we have that manipulation. But the live stream, the real time, it's going to start to cre create gaps, the breaks in those dissonance, points of dissonance, because people will see one thing and they'll say, well, hang on a minute, they're saying, there was one BBC article that says 300 people at the event. I said, there might have been this morning, three hours before it started. <laughs> <laughs> you know, you might be telling the truth if you're there at 7 a.m. in the morning, but come midday, thousands. But I was just thinking about your point around subliminal messaging. I, 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 I looked at a presentation yesterday that was given to children in Australia in order to persuade them to take the vaccine. And one of the slides, it's the, the, the presentation was what the teachers were going to give to the children in the class. And that full stop, we can evaluate the ethics of that, but on the point of subliminals. And you'll see if, from my talk earlier today how this works. So I gave a talk and I said, raise your hand if you're frustrated with X. And people raised their hand. So by me raising my hand, people are more likely to follow what I'm doing, so I've actually done it. Yes. Now, in this presentation deck, and I've spoken for 10 years, I know how to help people <laughs> participate in a room because we want engagement. Again, that's a tool. Um, in this presentation, the, the course instructor said, to the, raise your hand if you're concerned about taking the vaccine. Uh, sorry, raise the hand if you're going to take the vaccine in the presentation. And the image used in the slide was the hand already raised. Okay. Yeah. So you're already primed to raise your hand. And we've, sure. I've done this before in a room of an audience to so say, raise your hand if you do this. Now raise your hand and touch your wrist if you agree. And people will copy me, yeah. grab their elbow, yeah. even though I said touch your wrist. Yes. So people follow, they, 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 they're unconscious triggers. So even if more auditory or more deceptive forms of communication are or are not being used, that presentation alone in that one slide of hundreds of slides shows that they are using visual triggers mm. to create a response. So it's inevitable that these things are being used. And there's, the good news is, I suppose, from the behavioral science point of view, there are quite a lot of people in the UK from behavioral science backgrounds who are scrutinizing every piece of communication now. And that's what we need to do. But we yes. do not have any whistleblower or so from such area. Well, do no, you? No, but also the use of these techniques are so normalized that they're not seen as harmful. You know, if, if people, and it's one of my earliest mentors said, um, God save us from the well-intentioned. And the belief that they're doing it for the greater good, we're nudging people for the greater good. That's game over. Even if they know willingly using these mm -hmm. techniques, mm -hmm. Uh, using nudges because they believe it's for the greater good is the greatest challenge we're facing.
It's coming away from that and being able to consciously evaluate the ethics of something that's so important. But there's a, there's a, a scientist that I interviewed. I won't give away his name because he confided this in confidence, but I interviewed him as part of the podcast. He was involved in a climate change documentary about a decade ago as a researcher. And he was questioning the validity of the data and the practices that had been used to s select and fit. Yeah, Greenpeace, Patrick Moore, yeah. But the, the same. Yes, but the, the, the data that was selected for this, he asked the producer of the BBC documentary, mm -hmm. should we really be using for this? It's manipulation, it come, it, it, it's deceptive. And the producer said, sometimes we have to lie for the greater good. And how much have we witnessed that? But the, who determines what is the greater good? Who makes that moral judgment? You said, what is the greater good? Yeah. What is the greater good? And interestingly, I mean, we could go into history. Who determines moral authority? Who has the moral authority in modern society? Is it the state? Is it the corporations? Mm -hmm. Is it the church? Is it society? To me, the moral authority of the, has been hijacked by the corporations. They are the ones that are imposing a moral view and therefore determining a greater good on our behalf. I didn't get to say it in my talk today, but I remember uh, growing up, we had child luck on the television to stop, you know, it stops children from watching adult content on the television. Mm -hmm. But censorship to me is like an adult form of child, the child lock. We've been treated like children. Yeah. So, but who determines what adults can, can and cannot consume online? It's child lock. We've been treated like children. Right. Who determines what is the greater good? Who determines what is safe for us to view? It's automatized. Yeah. There, is, is there, an there will be an algorithm. Yeah, but we're being dumbed down. You don't think for yourself, it's, it's for the greater good, we need to do this and that. We stop this. Fine. We must. Yes. Yes. Is there anything, uh, like we're expecting a next guest in like yes. a few minutes, just one, uh, do you have um, any final remarks about the situation in England or like here or like any closing words like to give us? I suppose what inspires me right now is we talked about how the language has been used around the world. The, the consciousness, the awareness rather, I like to use the term awareness, the awareness of these issues is growing yeah. in parallel across the world. So it's, you know, no one is alone on this journey now, which is, I think for a lot of us at the beginning, we felt we were alone. You know, the amount of people I've met who felt isolated. And now people have connections. Our biggest challenge now is, uh, and it was predictable, after us working together through COVID and challenging restrictions and mandates and the science is that the next thing that comes along, whether it's Ukraine or the cost of living, we all have different political views, economic views, and then we, we club together yesterday and we fall out tomorrow because we see the world differently. Maybe. Our greatest opportunity. The same thing in one party. Yes. You have specialists. Yes. And they agree in one thing. Yes. And in the other things they don't agree. Absolutely. And uh, I was I was very much very often in conflict in Parliament. Yes. Because there were very good ideas in, in the party I joined, and uh, I was going with them. And I but I had I thought other things are very stupid, mm. and I was fighting against them. Yes. And so there was a tactical thing because you have to have majority. Yes. To influence. Yes. So you have to have enough other parliamentarians, who say yes, what you say is interesting, and we we will we will help you to get this tabled. Yes. And if you if you're always against, they won't you won't get it because you're someone who always says Challenges. the opposite. And so yes. you, so yes. you have, it's a very big conflict. Yes. 
sometimes you have to agree with, uh, with opinions, not you have to tolerate yes. opinions and to have to think of the whole thing, of the, yes. of the bigger thing, which is more important for you. Yes. And this is compromise. And it's in politics, it's always compromise. It's, mm. it's very stressing. It is distressing, but it's, that's also it, it, it's one of our greatest challenges. But right now, we have to we have to overcome our differences, and have yes. I call it um, united polarity. We can we can see that's things. A nice term. This yeah. is the good thing. In a war, you have an enemy, and we all united against this enemy. <laughs> <laughs> but we can we can we can respectfully and harmoniously disagree. But we can also continue to work together. Yes, and the enemy knows this. Yes, and we distract us with different topics. Yes, where he knows. That we are not, we don't agree with each other. Yes, and we crumble. So there is Corona, there is Ukraine, there is the food crisis, there is the climate crisis. Yes. So uh, who belongs to whom now? Yes. Yes. <laughs> who goes together? Yes. And the enemy says, "Great." Indeed. <laughs> yeah. So that's the challenge, but it's our opportunity, and I think right now that's we have to look to how we can we can we can work beyond our differences and find. But I think they're also playing a very dangerous game, you know, by, because, for instance, I mean, okay, we look at Ukraine, maybe there's different opinions, and Corona, yes. But, for instance, energy, you know, like if we all freeze at home, then we're all united again, you yes. know, so it's yes. like a very, yes. it's a toxic constellation <laughs> yes. that you don't know, that because if they give it as too much pain, like yes. as a simple human yeah. being, you know, then we all unite because we you all know. have the, I say, I I the naked skin on the market. I wonder why they don't advise us very simple thing to save energy if turn off the TV no <laughs> listen, listen. But just come together people one stove 20 people discussing yes. about our future yes. for hours and you save lots of energy yeah. meat you're two square meters of heating radiator you yes. you two almost yeah so warm, with warm. 37 degrees and with this if there are 10 people you don't need heating anymore yes. <laughs> yes but then the risk is we have a public square where we are all of a sudden willingly able to share free ideas and that, <laughs> yeah. that itself is a challenge that's why boris johnson says buy this 10 pound kettle that's going to cost you 20 pounds <laughs> you know it's going to buy, buy this 20 pounds kettle that's going to save you 10 pounds you know that's that that was literally what he said to the united kingdom so yes. Okay, but if, if, this, if this climate crisis or this energy crisis makes people come together more often, yes. it's a good thing. Well, well, as they say, what doesn't kill us makes us stronger. So but let's as uh, it is a good thing in <laughs> summer when we, when we go walking in the streets together. It's Indeed. a very good thing. <laughs> well, thank you for having me here. Okay, thanks ever so much. And, Appreciate uh, it. Yeah, we'll talk later on Indeed. the Congress. I Lovely guess. to see you both. Thank you. Thanks so much. Cheers. Thank you. Indeed, work. likewise. <laughs> Cheers. Thank you. Hello. Hello. Hi. Nice to see you. Thank you. Nice to see you again. Hello. Hello. So we're excited to have um, uh, Pierre Carey here today. And it would be great if you could maybe introduce yourself sure. a little bit, give, give us a background for the audience. Yeah. So I am um, I'm a lung and uh, intensive care unit specialist uh, and an internist um, who uh, probably I'm most known for being a co-founder of the Frontline COVID-19 Critical Care Alliance, which is um, a nonprofit organization that dedicated its, itself from the beginning to simply develop the most effective treatment protocols for COVID. And uh, uh, we've done that, and we try to disseminate it far and wide to help people. 
How was that received? <laughs> it's a long answer. Um, let's, I'll start with the positive. I think it, the protocol spread to good portions of the world. Um, in some countries, they even adopted it. Oddly, in Ukraine, we know our protocols are very much adhered to. Um, but outside of that, I think it's mostly been doctors, um, a minority of doctors who've followed them. None, none of the health agencies uh, recommend what we recommend. And in fact, we're generally attacked by most people for what we think works, actually, what we know works. I remember seeing you, like the, the group of doctors in the white um, coats, basically like presenting your information. And um, that made, on me, that made a very strong impression you, because you was, had this professional, you know, like it was very professionally done, plus it had this uh, authority um, to come with it. I and you're um, probably referring to the American frontline doctors, which is a little different. No, that was, oh, yeah. Are you talking about our no, testimony? No, I mean, this, that, that was one thing. And then your, what you, you oh, did, I wanted to con sure. continue. Yeah, and, and then what you said, and that was also very uh, intense. And I was wondering, like, both activities, like, have they been received in the same way, like, or? No, no, the, you, you can't be received. I mean, the, what I've learned, and I don't believe I knew this two and a half years ago, um, but everything that has happened since has taught those of us, um, let's say we have differing scientific opinions than what is established as consensus. So I've learned two things. One is that, sorry, I don't want to wait. Should I wait? Okay. Um, one is that, one is that the, the medical journals and the agencies are controlled by the pharmaceutical industry. And when you have that level of control, if you have a scientific opinion that threatens the interest of the pharmaceutical in, uh, industry. You will be attacked. Mm -hmm. That opinion of yours will be proven wrong in the published medical literature. They absolutely run the journals. And when I say the journals, I'm, I'm talking specifically about what are called high-impact medical journals. Mm -hmm. Because those are the journals that drive the headlines in the media, and those are the journals that are relied on by the health agencies. And so. <clears throat> By controlling those journals, they've gotten the entire world to believe very strange things that are not supported by the science. It, it's one of the most blatantly corrupt controls of science, that, examples of control. These examples have existed for decades. Are but, there exemptions? Uh, so are there exemptions to, to what? If I, would, if I uh, as a doctor, want to find some neutral and some some critical informations that don't obey the um, the pharmaceutical yes. industry uh, do i have the possibility to absolutely there's good science out there there's absolutely good science out there but you generally find it in i would say independent journals that are generally lower tier mm -hmm. because to get to a higher tier journal you need a lot of money and you need a lot of attention and so you can still find valid evidence analyses, but you, you, know, you have to look at journals that, um, that the world doesn't pay attention to. Mm -hmm. And so, so you can still find good science. You have to be very discriminating um, because there's so much. Um, it's really two things that they do is they do censorship 
and then they do what I would just say is fraudulence, and that, which turns it into propaganda. So they publish uh, essentially fraudulent trials, um, and, and they reject positive trials, for instance, of cheap drugs or medicines that threaten the pharmaceutical industry. And so basically, my point is this, is what I've learned is that the health policies are controlled, are created through false science that shows up in journals, and then corrupt leaders of those agencies. To, to get to be a leader in a health agency, you do not have a career which leads to leadership in a health agency until you have shown you can play very closely with pharmaceutical industry. You do not get there. Uh, I would say men and women of integrity, I think there's plenty of them that work in those agencies. I think they went to work for those agencies for well-intentioned goals, but that's not who rises to the leadership or the committees. Mm -hmm. um, because as soon as you get on a committee and you make a no vote against a pharmaceutical company's priority, mm -hmm. you're done. That's the last committee you're gonna be on. And so, so it, it's a really sad state of science, medical sciences, especially in a global pandemic. And so. I guess your first question is, has it been received and, and you know, has anyone adopted it? Uh, we've seen, we, well, our opinions did was it ignited a war, and it's a war of information. Mm -hmm. I would argue that they're winning. Um, I think we fought back really well, and I think we've had, I would argue we've had pretty incredible success given the forces that are against us. Um, yeah. But, but it's a sad state. I mean, there are a lot of people dying because of a lack of good information. They're not being told. And, and you know, I, I talk mostly about the war, for instance, on ivermectin. It was the same war on hydroxychloroquine as well as any other generic drug. But their methods and their tactics are identical to the vaccine campaign. So they've gotten the world to believe, and when I say the world, most of academia, most doctors believe very strongly that these vaccines are safe and effective and are indicated even for children as young as toddlers. And so, so I'm just going to finish by saying, you know, this war of information has led most of the world to believe absolutely false science. There are two ways to damage the people, not to give them the right treatment. Yep. And the other thing is to give them the wrong treatment. Yep. Those done two both. possibilities. They have done both. So for example, so I talk mostly to try to defend the use of repurposed drugs. If you look at remdesivir, I mean, that is a blatant fraud that I thought anyone could see. Yes. But yet you have the entire country of the United States infusing it into the arm of every hospitalized patient yes. at a phase of the disease where the virus is no longer present. And so it's, it, you know, all I see is a scientific absurdity atop scientific absurdities. And yet that drug, one trial, barely showed that it helped, really had the minimal impact, and suddenly the U.S. government spent multiple billions of dollars last year. Even the WHO trials. Now that's another interesting case because that's a drug that actually has high-profile journal articles that show it doesn't work. Yes. Studies by the WHO. But in this country, it shows you that we don't follow science, we follow money. And the money said they want remdesivir to be standard of care, and, and of course everyone should know, right, is that Dr. Fauci, you do not have a job for 35 years as the head of the biomedical industrial complex unless you work for pharma. Mm -hmm. I mean, had he been a man of integrity and in science and good policy, we would not know his name. That's true. Like, there was this one um, 
One study, like this one person uh, study, like in the, um, wie heißt das nochmal, dieses Magazin, was da, weißt du, wo diese eine Studie rauskam, ähm, diese ganz berühmte, wo dann alles an dem einen Mann ausprobiert wurde und der ist trotzdem gestorben, dieses ganz berühmte ähm, Ärztemagazin da. No. There was this one, uh, do you know this, uh, where they presented this treatment of this one person who eventually died um, in this in this very famous, uh, just the name escapes me, um, of this um, magazine like for the for the doctors, and they put him on a respi uh, respiratory um, treatment. And uh, do you remember that name of the, the sorry the name of the magazine? Um, Whatever. So it was like this one wrong gone treatment, and that became standard basically for everyone. So someone must have dropped this this study there to be spread out into all this uh, the to all the doctors. Yeah. You know. So that's kind of also interesting. Where that, does that come from? I mean, who finances these kind of things? Well, I mean, journals make most of their money from pharmaceutical company advertising as well as the purchase of um, what are called reprints. So when they publish an, an article in a journal, they buy many, 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 many copies. And so the journal makes money by selling them copies so that they can distribute to support their medicines. And so there's a lot of pharmaceutical money. In fact, pharmaceutical money is everywhere. You know, all the people who work in those agencies, most of them, especially leadership, They get there because they know they're looking for a pharmaceutical job when they're done. It's called the revolving door. Yeah. And so if you want a job in the pharmaceutical industry afterwards, you can retire, pay off your house, send your kids to college. You're going to work for them while you're working for the government. And until a time where we can figure out how to remove the horrific influence of the pharmaceutical industry, our public health is going to continue to be a disaster. And we are going to die. We are dying every day from public health policies that are killing people because they're not, they don't have access to safe and effective medicines and they're being subjected and mandated to take a lethal vaccine. Lethal. So what can you see in your own practice? So right now, I also, besides my organization, I all, I've left the health system. I no longer work for any hospitals or employers. I am now self-employed. Um, very happy, actually. Um, and in my practice, I focus um, mostly personally. My partner does a little bit more. Um, we see patients for all phases of COVID. Um, I, in particular, am and specializing in the treatment of patients with what's called long-haul COVID, yeah. uh, as well as the vaccine injured. And um, these patients are often debilitated. The ones that see me are disabled. Um, and I see a lot of vaccine injured. And it's... It never ceases being said because so many, I would say the majority, it's bizarre, the majority were healthy, ate well, took care of themselves, were doing well in their careers, and now they're disabled. If you should estimate the, the, the number of, uh, of patients suffering from so-called long COVID, not being vaccinated, not never having got this shot, and others that have got the shot? How many did not get the shot? How many, what is the percentage? So if, is, a, is the question you're asking, does vaccination prevent long haul COVID? Or, or just the relative or does numbers? It, does it even, uh, is it even the reason of so-called so, so no, So no, so long haul COVID was uh, well described before the vaccine. So I do think that's a separate entity 
Vaccine injury syndromes are very similar to long-haul COVID with some differences. There is overlap because we do know, uh, as Dr. Bhakti just gave a wonderful lecture on, unfortunately, the spike protein is a pathogen. And a pathogen is an organism or um, a compound which causes disease and creates illness. And so the spike protein, unfortunately, for the world, uh, they chose a pathogen. Uh, to try to protect you from a pathogen. Yeah, doesn't make sense to me. But anyway, that spike protein in, triggers many mechanisms. And so when you talk about the numbers, the numbers of long-haul COVID, it's estimated anywhere from 10 to 50%. We kind of choose 30%. But more importantly is how many that have really disabling symptoms. Obviously, that's a smaller number, but it's still numbers in the millions of disabled. And we see that in the United States disability data. You know, you could speak, particularly in 2021, it shows you the impact of the vaccine. You see a sharp rise, not only in all cause mortality, but in disability. We are having millions entering disability right now. Um, and the, you, the timing can only mean that it was the vaccines. It wasn't lockdowns, it wasn't anything else. So, um, but the vaccine injured, you know, the estimates of how many are vaccine injured, there's German data that I've seen where I think they found, I'm going to mess up the numbers, maybe somewhere between 4 and 5% in one database, patients required a visit to a healthcare provider or institution. What I miss very, in, in several studies, recent studies, that they, they speak about uh, long COVID and they don't even mention, they don't even distinguish between those people having got the vaccine. And, and, and so that, that is, it almost goes back to the opening topic where we talked about it. It's really about science and they suppress. So not only do they put false science in there, but they, they keep damaging science out. When I say damaging, anything that's unfavorable to the vaccines is kept out and so so you're right and and the way it works the way it plays out in the united states and i'm sure in germany and other countries it's the same we have at our academic medical centers so the big university type hospitals they've all opened long-haul covid clinics there is no vaccine injury clinic there is no center of excellence in the study or the treatment. I would argue my practice is one of them. I don't know how excellent we are, but we're certainly trying. Um, the patients are very complex. Uh, we are learning a lot of things that help them, and I'm able to really help a significant proportion. There's another minority where I really struggle on how to help them. We had in, in our committee, we had a guest, it's uh, now more than one year ago, it was Dr. Chetty from South yep. Africa. And he spoke of two-phase uh, two illness. And what he was describing, I knew it as a pneumonitis, and I knew it, it was something, it was a pneumonitis. It was not a pneumonia, it was not a virus pneumonia. It's actually an organizing pneumonia. It's, it's a, it was an immune reaction and he yes. treated it with cortisone and he treated it with antihistaminics and such thing. And it was very successful. He had thousands of patients and he, he described it. It was very convincing. Did you observe such, uh, such cases yeah, too? Yeah, you know, so what I want to say about Dr. Chetty and, and the approaches to treatment, there are many different treatments, there's so many treatments that work different combinations. We've never uh, felt that the, the antihistamines was the answer. Um, mm -hmm. Other people have had success, 
Uh, that's great. You can have success anyway. The corticosteroids, I think, was really key. Inhalation or no. systematic? Systematic. Mm -hmm. Yeah, you need systematic. And the there reason are, why... There are others who say it also helps when you, when you, take, uh, in, when you inhale it. Not much. Mm. So, so there are treatments that work. When we work on our protocols, we, can, we have dozens of things to choose from. We, we tend to use things that work in combination, like the best combinations in synergy, but it doesn't mean that there are, you know, there's a lot of things that aren't on our protocol that work. So cortical, inhale corticosteroids, that has shown some benefit. We weren't impressed with the amount of benefit, um, but it's certainly helpful, and a lot of people have used it with success. Mm -hmm. the, the, the key thing, though, about the, um, the pulmonary phase of COVID is that, and this is another shocking thing to me, and th this, this I don't understand, because it's, you can, you know, when going back to what shows up in journals is that good science um, can show up in even high-impact journals as long as it doesn't threaten the pharmaceutical industry. And, and I'm, I'm proud to say that I wrote uh, the first paper that described what the lung disease is. It's actually mm -hmm. something called an organizing pneumonia. Mm -hmm. It's been associated with viruses. Um, and the standard of care for decades for organizing pneumonia, when you get into that phase where your oxygen is low, your x-ray is abnormal, it's corticosteroids. And as an organization, we were recommending corticosteroids early in 2020. Mm -hmm. And I gave testimony in the Senate in May of 2020 in which we didn't talk about ivermectin, we talked about corticosteroids. And we did that at a time when the entire world said not to use it. I think there is a clinical bias because of um, the, the first time you, you contact a patient, mostly is when he's really urgently ill. Yeah. He doesn't come when he's a, right. a cold. Right. And what Mr. Chad said was that he, when he has normal cold, people with a normal cold, he tells them to come seven days, like in, after one week or eight days, come back, and, and, or he called back whether right. they are well. Right. And this is the most important thing I learned from, from this. And I think that those cases getting seriously where the, where the pneumonitis started and the, aller the allergic much reaction, more difficult to treat. It, was, it was always this, this uh, period in between. And in a clinic, you, you don't think of the, of the first cold yeah. eight, eight days ago. You just see the patient with the pneumonia. And I think this makes the doctor blind yeah. if he doesn't think of it. There's no question. Well, doctors, I, I would say they were all told not to there was no early treatment. So that's the doctors in the system, all they saw were the patients who got the lung phase and we became very sick. And But the, the, my point is that they didn't recognize what it was, even though I published the paper that essentially proved what it was. Uh, they didn't use corticosteroids in the beginning. Many hundreds of thousands died. Uh, they were offering no treatments in, in the spring of 2020. Our, well, it's what I call supportive care, so ventilators, oxygen, fluid, something for fever. And, and the criminality is really this concerted um, effort by national health agencies to tell people to go home, wait till your lips turn blue. There's nothing for you. They didn't want doc patients treated. So someone might ask, why wouldn't they want someone treated? Why wouldn't they want doctors to try something? super safe that looks good on paper we don't know if it works but mm. it's reasonable to try mm. the reason why they didn't want to do that is because again same point they needed to protect the market for their pipeline drugs that's why the world is subjected and to paxlovid used, and molnupiravir and they even did something with hydroxychloroquine yeah that they overdosed it yeah and that they they had all those toxic effects 
and they had this this with the, with the G6 PD yep. deficiency forfism. Even this, they knew that in some countries there 20% of the population would would react in a, in a very serious way if you give a high dose. They would they could even kill them. The, the rapaciousness, the depravity of that industry. Um, I mean, it, it is a criminal industry. It's documented criminal industry. Mm -hmm. I mean, you can look at any major corporation in that industry. They have a huge list of criminal fines and yes. civil penalties yes, 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 for their behaviors. And many of those behaviors led to many, many deaths. Yes, they release drugs that they know are dangerous and will kill more than they save, and they we've don't seen, care. We've seen this, this table where, where they have the the profit, the revenue of the and, and the part of, of punishment, and for the single companies, yep. you see they are well off, and they know how to win in court. They know how to protect themselves. I mean, now uh, when they get threatened, they've been threatened to be bankrupted many times. Many observers of that industry, before one of some of these criminal cases, have predicted that they would get bankrupted. No. They never go bankrupt. Their no. lawyers will protect them. They get the fines down to a few billion, and then they, they, have, and, they yeah. have techniques how to to, to distract the, the the audience oh, and, yeah. and the shareholders. Yep. This is the most important thing: how to distract the shareholders to show them that there are new things in the pipeline, yep. and we will do this. It's not very. It's they, not serious, and so they lie. They, and and yeah. the doctors, like, who maybe, uh, why wouldn't they, at, uh, from your observation, so they immediately fell for the propaganda as well, that there was no early treatment, or, or was it, did it have other so, reasons? Yes, yeah, so I think you're, that's a good question, is I think there's another factor in play, um, is that many doctors, the way they're trained now, um, is they, they're literally trained to not believe anything works unless it's proven to be effective in a large randomized controlled trial in a high-impact journal. And so they, I think most doctors are very cautious and they are not willing to try things. Even safe things that they hear about work, they just, when they're told that there's no treatment and just wait it out, drink fluids, stay at home, rest, they believe that, and that's what they did to most patients. They, mo most of them did not attempt treatments. And those of us that did, who, you know, I've always done that in my practice in the ICU, and I had someone deteriorating, and I was giving them everything that I knew worked, and it still wasn't working, I had to think of other stuff to try. You have to look for something you're missing. You have to think about some, some other medicine which could bring about that. And you try things. I mean, especially when someone's dying. And here, we knew that a proportion of patients were going to hospitals, they were filling ICUs, and they were dying, and yet they never got early treatment. And, and every doctor, but, but going back to my point, and I'm sorry to be so negative all the time, but the things that they've convinced doctors of, scientific facts that they've convinced doctors of, is, is really strange. So, so, for instance, they've gotten doctors to remember that all viral syndromes, if there's any treatment, you have to give it early within the first days of symptoms. Doctors mm -hmm. were allowed to forget that. They've also um, convinced doctors that natural immunity is 
insignificant and not helpful. So I, I see a whole system around the world of physicians trying to vaccinate patients who just recovered from COVID. It is absolutely absurd. It is the most insane thing. And, it, and that insanity has now plagued almost the entire world's physicians. They are vaccinating people who just recovered from a virus. And, and so the, the things that I've seen doctors do, they've been, you know, I, I thought going in that they might, doctors, because apparently we're smarter than most, that's not true. Uh, but I just thought we would be particularly resistant to propaganda, and in particular scientific, and in fact, I think now the opposite is true, is they were much more uh, sensitive to propaganda. They're much more, they, they're, they've become much more victimized. I think everybody here in COVID is, except for those who are aware of, of the truths, um, are, have been victims of just immense propaganda and censorship. They concentrate on the antibodies, whether when they yeah. speak about immunity, it's a nonsense, yeah. because you have a local immunity, you have- Like the, Dr. The Bakhti local... said in his, in his lecture, so simple. You know, they're giving you this vaccine, the antibodies are in the blood, and the virus enters through the nose and, and the skin. And so that the blood's not, yeah, yeah. it's... There so, are connections anyway. between those two systems, yeah. but this is the most, it's respiratory viruses. And our body is... is I, I feel like you and I could spend hours talking about the absurdities, right? So the other one, <laughs> I'll go even a step behind, uh, back from Dr. Bakhti, yeah. is that when the vaccines were announced, I said, why are they vaccinating against a coronavirus? I mean, it's one of the most highly mutagenic viruses. We've never had a successful vaccine. As soon as you start giving a vaccine, you know the virus is gonna mutate. We know the flu vaccine barely works, although that's mandated ever. So, you know, some of us knew this was completely illogical from the beginning. And as, so- As a young doctor, I, I'm convinced, and I was convinced before corona, that there is no use giving a vaccine against respiratory viruses you inject into the muscle. Yep. It's a, and even if you, if you spray, right. you have a local, may, may, they have a local training of your yep. mind, according one virus or two subspecies, you, they won't have a chance perhaps. But the other viruses, the 200 viruses who make the right. same thing, they enjoy, they say, oh, yes. we don't now have comp competitors visit. are gone. We, we. So, and that's the other thing. So basic principles of immunity and data, and, and I would argue, so what your point is, it's a great point, right, is that we know from flu vaccines that the patients who get flu vaccines have a higher risk of getting other the respiratory virus. Pentagon's going to prove it with thousands so, of people. But here's the thing. That is such an important scientific finding, but it's not taught. It's also census. So you can see the vaccination industry has for a long time corrupted science. They, they want everyone to believe that the vaccines are the backbone of your health, and it's as simple as had influenza vaccines. Yeah. And they were speaking oh, they only about, about influenza H1 yeah. and, and X, and oh. they always had, had variations of, of influenza, and they made their business. They forgot all the 200 others. That yeah. <laughs> In America, they also separated the uh, the vaccination process from the your family doctor's office. Is that right? Like yes, that it was done in, in these that's, It's centers. interesting you bring that up because I don't think most people talk about that. I think it's a really important thing is that typically you got vaccines when you visited your doctor. Mm. And here they just, I mean, they were setting up tables in the street, in parking lots. You had people who didn't know what they were doing. No one knows in the vaccine and you're just, the entire population's getting vaccinated. It's absurd. To bypass the critical doctors, yeah. they've learned that in the swine flu, 
In the swine flu, they bought vaccine in Germany for, for 50 million people, yeah. and only 4 million doses were, were applied. Because, because the doctors, the doctors were resisted. critical. Yeah. They said, no, we don't believe this. Yeah. And so they had no success. They had success because they sold it. Right. But right. they got the money. Right. But they didn't, it was not, it fortunately, was not it machine. was not used. Yeah. But now they, they bypassed this, and they, the situation was, and the, 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 whole, the whole framing was, oh, the doctors, we, don't, we want to have it too, we want to have it too. We, we, and they were waiting, no, there's not enough for you now. We right. have to do the other thing. We have we, to distribute it's an urgent to the, case, yeah. we have to have the military. They, they know what they're doing. Yes, and, and, exactly. and you, know, you can see that same behavior uh, that you're describing around the vaccines, you saw it play out again with this drug called Paxlovid. In the United States, <laughs> the federal government created a program where pharmacists can, dis can administer Paxlovid to a patient, a pharmacist, no license to practice medicine, has never treated patients before, and it happens to be the most complicated drug that well, I've never given it, but it's the most complicated drug I've ever seen. So it has 125 medications that it interacts with across 25 classes. Let me repeat, 125 drug interactions across 25 classes, and you have no idea how to stop the medications that people are. And in America, we're a highly medicated society. I call it the United States of Pharma. Um, patients are on numerous prescription medicines, and so you have a pharmacist now who has to make a judgment on which of his or her medicines they can stop without knowing the history, how important those medicines are, how severe their diseases are. I mean, you need a, a physician who knows the patient to make that sure. kind of decision. And, and so they, 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 want, they want teenagers giving a toxic vaccine across the country, and they want pharmacists pushing a very expensive the, pill. In, or the other trick is that they, in Germany, they, they reward financially oh, yeah. if it is prescribed, the yep. doctors. So how big um, were these, do you think these, these financial incentives were? I mean, you, we have the, a lot of money that you get extra for like uh, in, intubating and you know, these kind of things. So, so um, can you please elaborate, do you, do you have any numbers of? Well, we know that in this country, again, legislation was passed which gave hospitals a 20% bonus mm -hmm. of the entire hospital bill. So you tacked on 20% from the federal government mm -hmm. if you used recommended emergency youth authorization medicines like remdesivir. So every time you had a patient in the hospital who got remdesivir, that added 20% to your bill. Mm -hmm. Now, it's been true for decades that patients who require a ventilator, the hospitals get more money for that. Now, I don't I, I would say that's not corrupt to do that. The patients who land on ventilators are clearly more complicated. They require much more intense care. So I think it's appropriate to give them more money. But you could ask uh, whether, you know, these um, early intubation policies may have been influenced by that. I, I will say this, though. I'm going to say very personally on that. So when, when COVID happened, I was the director of uh, the major ICU at the University of Wisconsin, which is one of the biggest academic institutions in, in the country. And when I was there, and we were preparing our approach to COVID, 
I had a lot of colleagues coming up to me, and they wanted me to set a trigger to put someone on a ventilator. You know, as soon as they're on six liters of oxygen or 10 liters. Mm -hmm. And I fought back. I said, absolutely not. We are not changing how you make that decision. By the way, to decide to put someone on a ventilator is not easy. You, I basically, I always say that every time I've made a decision to put someone on a ventilator, it's either been a little too early or a little too late. And in my practice, I would argue a little too late. I usually try to give patients as much opportunities to avoid a ventilator as I can. But, but the point I want to bring up is when they were pushing me to set a trigger, first of all, it was ridiculously low, and I, I knew we were going to hurt people, but they were doing it out of fear. It wasn't corruption. I could see that it was really doctors wanting the best to have it, and I think they were so scared, and we were hearing stories of patients that were presenting looking well and then would rapidly deteriorate. And, and I would argue if that was the case, it turned out they didn't rapidly deteriorate. But... If you had a disease where someone would literally de deteriorate within minutes, there you would have to rethink your ventilation policy. But it was just initial fear is overblown, and, and I would say uh, we have a phrase, cooler heads prevailed, like me. <laughs> no, I'm very proud of fighting that because I, I could tell they were, they were going to set a rule. Oh, people love rules, especially doctors. They love being told, do this then, do that You know, here, so they don't have to think. And, I think a lot of us are lazy. We like simplicity. We like black and white. And, and fortunately, the world's not that way, and medicine is if, not that if way. If something happens, you can say, I follow the rules. Yes. That's also a very important also point. That's a very important point. And that's also why most doctors do not prescribe ivermectin or hydroxychloroquine. Because it, it's against the rules, supposedly. Happens. Patients can die if they die, yeah. and you do something against the rules. Yeah. No, I think that's, that's an extremely important point to them because once they make the rules, they control everything. And all they have to do is make rules. I was working on all the guidelines on made, the German guidelines. Yeah. And they were very contradictory very often because each specialty of doctors had their own guidelines. Right, right. And uh, when, I, when I was analyzing the, the organizations of the specialists, cardiologue or, or yep. neurologue or whatever, yep. they all were existing only because they got money from the industry. If you can you see in the annual reports oh, where yeah. they get the money, yep. they won't, wouldn't exist as an organization if they would... They, they wouldn't get enough money from doctor's fees uh, no. to exist. No. no, they need a lot of help. Yes, yes. To pay the if you go to the Congress, the you, you see it. Yeah. <laughs> So how much money can you make of a, a vaccination office? I mean, is it, how much do you get per vaccination in America? So I don't know uh, what the, because it's mostly been given at pharmacy. I, I actually don't know the answer. I, I know there is, I know that vaccines, there is a fee that comes with it. Uh, and if you give a lot of vaccines, I'm sure it's considerable, but. Um, so in America, it's usually done in the pharmacies. In, uh, for COVID, it, it seems like many, many patients got it in pharmacies, uh, le less than their doctors. I mean, yeah, it's uh, Germany, on purpose. In Germany, they had such such uh, a, a group of people, doctors, going to the to to the, uh, the care to the old people's oh, yeah. home and so on. Yeah. They, they were and just vaccinated everyone. Yeah. yeah, it's 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 been terrifying. Mm -hmm. um, 
And do you see some sort of movement within the doctors that are more and more people waking up because they see there's more people with, um, you know, uh, maybe they just declared as so long COVID syndrome? No, because I, unfortunately, I live in my own bubble now. Uh, bubble of truth. But, <laughs> but what I'm saying about that is that the people that I work with, interact with in my network, we're all aware of the fraudulence and, and the, the false science that they're practicing. And your question is something that we've thought about every day. When are enough doctors going to realize that they've been lied to and they've been fooled? And so I don't talk to doctors in the system. It's really unfortunate. Many former colleagues and mentors don't reach out to me, don't talk to me. Um, so I look, like you, I'm sure we look for signs. You look for signs in major media. You look for new developments, maybe some discussions that are held in very public settings where there's at least some indication that the wider population is aware of the toxicity. And I haven't really seen that. I've seen a few things, but I just, I have not seen or heard the narrative change, right? And a narrative is another word for propaganda. And propaganda is a story or a message that is sent out to get people to think or do something. And the propaganda is still out there. They want people to think the vaccines are safe and to believe and take the vaccine to protect themselves. And that's a, that's a narrative that, that keeps pushing. And until the narrative changes to a true one, right? Because propaganda, remember, propaganda is not always false. It's often false, it's not always false. Um, and you can have true and very helpful propaganda. So for instance, if we change the narrative to the vaccines are lethal and the program should be stopped immediately around the world, um, that would be really nice to get that, uh, that out there. And, and so we are seeing a few things. It's not covered, but recently, right, there is this big story, but not covered by the major media, about the Israeli um, data looking at the vaccine toxicity, it literally admitting uh, that they knew. You have Denmark now re not recommending vaccines for low-risk individuals under 50. So they're going cautiously, but I would say Denmark, out of the whole world, is in, is, is in the lead by making national recommendations and guidelines that really show a lot of caution to the vaccine. I think it's insufficient. I think there's enough data to stop them around the world immediately for all ages, even 85-year-olds. Mm -hmm. um, so I, I, I'm waiting for that first country. I, I want to see the dam break. I want to see finally one country bring the vaccine program to a halt immediately. But I, I don't know that there's numbers of I, I don't know. I, I'll tell you, I, I want to still answer your question from a different way. The patients that see me in my practice, all of them have had journeys in the medical system yes. from their vaccine injury, and they've seen numerous specialists. And the first 10 minutes of all of my visits is they recount that journey, and they can't help, but the, the lot of that journey is the things that doctors do and say to them. And it is, it's, I, you know, throughout my career, I've had patients complain of another doctor. Like, I saw this doctor and he said this. And what the patient told me, I was like, 
absolutely offended that another doctor would say that to a patient. Now I hear it constantly. The patients are fed up. They are sick of these doctors. They're being mistreated, abandoned, gaslit, and oftentimes insulted. If you bring up the word vaccine or injury to a doctor, their reactions are the, the most unethical, the most unempathetic, uh, the most unhelpful, and really offensive. And, and so, as long as I keep hearing those stories, I don't think they're waking up in there. Well, I mean, they must be majorly, uh, you know, afraid of what my, I mean, they're in cognitive dissonance. Yes, either, they're, they're Or like they are super defensive because they know that they did something wrong. I mean, by like hopping onto these vaccine uh, trains. If they start, you're right. If they start recognizing vaccine injury, they will have to either unconsciously or consciously admit complicity. Like what they admit did. Admit complicity that they've injured people. And no doctor wants to do that. I mean, say what we want about doctors. They do want to help. They do want to help. They don't want to give people bad stuff. They don't want to give stuff that's making people die. Unfortunately, they are complicit in this humanitarian catastrophe, but it's because they are victims of propaganda and censorship. It's not because they're bad people. It's that they have bad information that they're, being, that they're following. And I want this lie to be revealed, because I think if this lie becomes revealed, we can change everything that we've talked about today. This, this, this implicit faith and following of agencies and journals has to stop. It has to stop, because they've been lying for a long time. How are you successfully, I mean, treating people? Can you, like, yeah. give us a few... So, with, uh, with long-haul and vaccine injured, is that yes. right? Yeah, because, um, so, at our organization's website, which is flccc.net, so that's my nonprofit organization. In my practice, my practice is evolving, but we have, it's not really a protocol, but it's a guide to, to therapies that work. So we have, there's no proven therapies. There are very few clinical trials to help guide us, so we are using knowledge of what's called the pathologic mechanisms triggered by the vaccine with knowledge of the mechanisms of action of different medicines, and we try to use medicines that block this pathology. And so we're using clinical experience, expertise, reasoning, and we have, but because there's no trials and there's really no good test to tell you which mechanism is predominant, I'm getting a little bit better, I think, at, at detecting which is the mechanism just by seeing the patients and their patterns of symptoms. But even doing that is, is hard. So, so there are things we, tr we do trials of therapy. So there are things that I use as a first line, a second line, a third line. And I will say that so far to date, the two most successful medicines in the, um, in the vaccine injured and long hauler is a medicine called naltrexone, which we give at very low doses, as well as ivermectin. Mm -hmm. um, now, those two drugs don't work in everybody, but I would say the majority, and I don't know what that majority is, maybe 60, 70 percent, uh, will have a good response to one of the, one of the two or both of them. Um, and they have many, many positive therapeutic mechanisms that control inflammation, um, that kind of reset the immune system, and, and so, uh, they're really important medicines. So those are the two. And then my second and third line vary um, between the severity of the patient and, um, but we do treat things like mast cell activation syndrome, which is fairly common in this mm -hmm. disorder. And that's just like antihistamines and mm -hmm. antacids. Um, 
One area which Dr. Bhakti kind of referred to is that we do, we do know that the vaccine injured have a condition called microclotting. Now, it's poorly defined what microclotting is, but it, it really is aggregations of platelets that are very active, um, and there are, there are remnants of the spike that's in the center, so you, you see these, uh, these proteins that become very thrombogenic. And so with some patients, I do try anticoagulation. And the, 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 the challenge with that is almost everything on our protocols are really, really safe. When you start talking about thinning someone's blood, I mean, that has risks. I mean, they're low, uh, but, you know, we don't want to hurt anyone. And when you're doing it for an indication that, for instance, there's no rules, there's no guidelines. I mean, you know, if you put someone on a blood thinner and something bad happens to them and someone says, why did you do this? Uh, and you have no papers to show. Well, actually, there are papers. Let me correct that. There, there are some papers that have shown the benefits of, of, of anticoagulant. But how to choose those patients is hard. You need a really specialized test. And most of my patients don't have access to that. So anyway, so another strategy is... Um, is uh, blood thinners, and then there are some just really new, interesting medicines that I'm uh, that I've used with great success. Uh, they're called GCRP inhibitors, and I've had a couple of really positive responses with those. Um, and so, you know, I, I don't want to use the word experimenting, but I am doing trial and error, and, and we are learning things that work. I mean, I've, I, would, I was using things that I didn't really think helped, and I stopped using them. They were safe, largely supplements. I used to give these patients lots of different supplements, and I don't do that anymore. We have this regulation that in hospital you can try out new, new methods. You're allowed yeah, right to, to try, right? Yes, the right that's to what try. The, we have. But as a, as a practitioner, as a general practitioner, you're not. Oh, you can try things in the hospital, but you can't try things as an no, outpatient. Not a clinical study, but behandlungsversuche treatment. You can try out a treatment if you don't think, if you think there is nothing else you can try out. Yeah. And you document it, and so. But, uh, but not as an outpatient. No, there's a difference between between. Yes, between the practitioners and... That's unfortunate. That's really unfortunate because in this country, I mean, if once a medicine is approved by the FDA for safe to use in one condition, mm -hmm. we it's called off-label use. You can take yes, that drug right. and use it for any condition you okay. want. You have to, you have to, to, to write a letter to, us, to, the, to, the, uh, to the administration that you want to do that. So in Germany, you say, okay, I want to use this medicine for this new thing, but you have to get it. You have to get permission. Is that what you're saying? You have to yes, get permission yes, first yes. from the yes. hospital or whatever. Yeah. No, from from the administration, like the health administration, like the the health ministry. Yes. The health. Who, who want to pay? Who have to pay it? Oh, right, right, right. So for the insurers and whatnot. Yeah. Yeah, yeah we haven't. <clears throat> Yeah, we haven't had, we have had some pushback from insurance companies, um, which is the most curious to me because I, I, I would think they wouldn't want to keep people out of the hospital, and these people use a lot of healthcare resources. But they, some of them has have gone after doctors who use medicines like ivermectin. So. I think it's difficult to do to come to compare those different health systems because of the, the incentives. Yes. Different, yeah. Completely different, different yeah. incentives. Yeah. And those influences have succeeded 
in different strategies in different countries, yeah. right? Like making That's these okay. rules, making these laws to make it easier for them and yes. harder for others. Yeah, I, I get it. So. Can I ask you, like, there's this, um, this website, How Bad Is My, uh, my Batch? Yeah. And um, have you made any, so it seems that you have like a very small amount of charges that uh, batches that are really mm -hmm. toxic and others that are maybe nothing or at yep. least nothing visible right now. And have you made these kind of observations also in your practice? So um, that's, I haven't been looking up my patients' lot numbers just because I have little time and it It's not going to really change what I do, but my patients do. Mm -hmm. So when I see patients, quite a few of them will say, you know, I got the vaccine on this date, this was my lot, and it's ranked as one of the more dangerous lots. And so it's quite a few of my patients, they know, they know they got a lot that was very dangerous. So, um, and that lot variation is really scary. And, and, and again, it shows you the corruption. You know, anybody, from what I understand, anyone in manufacturing of any type, whether it's automotive, machines, electronics, if you suddenly start seeing, you know, explosions in a, you know, from a certain factory or a line, you know there's a, a manufacturing problem, yeah. And, and you immediately find out what's the source, right? And so here, You have these wicked lot variations, which I would say there'd be an immediate investigation of the factory of, you know, where did that lot come from? Where was it made? You know, you would investigate the contents. What's in those batches that's causing all of these VAERS reports? Mm -hmm. And you saw nothing. But you, um, is there any, I mean, I don't know how detailed that, uh, that uh, how bad is your batch is, but can we also see batch number or lot number, blah, 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 is then leading to more, uh, to a, a spike in cancer outbreaks? Like, do you well, know? Well, I think that's going to be, that's, a, that's an, I mean, it's an excellent proposal for a study because um, that the cancer could be a lot variation, which was quite scary because what's because really when you have a lot variation, what I understand from people in manufacturing is that it's a production problem, right? And so, you know, and with with vaccines, it would be a contamination problem would be the first thing you would think of, right? And so. If there's a driver of that, you know, cancer in between those lots, so what is that cancer-causing contaminant, right? And if there's not a variation by lot with cancer, yeah. also equally scary, which means that the vaccine itself, right, is is is, is cancer-causing, and so there are many possibilities. Many possibilities. Big in transparency with the production process yep. and with the contents. Yep. The nucleic acids, the mRNA, how it is shaped, what is what is inside, what is oh, yeah. not. Oh yeah. It's it's very it's and, different to and, control. And the the recent report by actually a German group, a, a well-regarded German group, just published um, their uh, very detailed analysis of the vials, and they found yes. lots of contaminants, and most yeah. of them were heavy metals. Yes, yeah. contaminants too. Yeah. But also variations. It's very strange. I looked right. at that. Some were not as contaminated yeah. as others. And also, like rare earths. I mean, very yeah. strange. Well, how would yeah. that get into this? You can regulate the side effect of those vials with the temperature you store it. Mm -hmm. The mRNA gets destroyed yeah. with a higher temperature for a longer time. So if you don't want to have side effects and you want to sell it, 
just keep it in a warmer temperature. And... Right, right. And that, that could neuter the toxicity of the vaccines, you're right. So, <laughs> yeah. But I don't know if there was really so many differences in that in the beginning, because it seemed, at least in Germany, they, got, they were so obsessed with like keeping it cool all the time. That must have been some rare exceptions. I don't know. Yeah. I mean, we have evidence that in an old people's home, they did, um, they, out of like 30 um, you know, senior citizens who got vaccinated, um, eight of them passed away really quickly. And I think it was like basically everyone was like got the same batch number. So, so there must must have been some sort of connection. I mean, that report of uh, numbers of people dying in care homes and nursing homes, that came out all across the world, and that was very early. That was January and February 2020. There were nursing homes in Norway, nursing homes in the United States. I mean, you could see that in the newspapers, and it was ignored, and nobody wanted to tie it to the vaccines when it was clearly the vaccines. It's sad. Well, we have a, a surprise guest here. <laughs> um, yeah, maybe could you just introduce? Uh, sorry, I'm, I, we, I think we have reached uh, a point where maybe we can add his. Um, his. Uh, I, I don't know. If it, maybe you could stay for a second, okay. and then maybe could you just um, introduce yourself? And I think you have something very interesting to say. Yeah. Uh, good afternoon. Hello. My name is José Nasser. I'm a physician. I'm graduated in Brazil and I uh, did my residency in uh, surgical neurology. And then uh, after neuroscience in Columbia University in the US, New York, I did my PhD in molecular biology of brain tumors, especially invasion and metastasis. I described two genes at the time. And uh, it was the genome project at that time, so I participated in the initial. Today is a beauty. Bertoli Brain Tumor Center in New York, but that time, by my time, was just in PNS one floor. So, uh, and then there was the start of genetic therapy for brain tumors. That wasn't the first trial, so it takes 20 years to develop the first patient. So that's why I, I got inside the COVID story, you know, after they described all these vaccines, this the genetic therapy, experimental, rush, warp speed operation. Mm -hmm. And then I started to speak from South America, from Brazil. And I have all my contacts still living in the US and Europe. And uh, we had all the files and uh, we discussed the articles and uh, I had a YouTube channel speaking to the lay people what the COVID means, everything. The, by this, I mean, real, real start, like Dr. Dr. Shuka yeah, today spoke about, you know, tell people very uh, friendly how they can understand our, you know, uh, fancy words. So I did, I think I had a, more than 70 videos on YouTube channel. Now my channel is not working anymore. YouTube just suspended after I present my in front of the Senate in Brazil and all the the things that I said about the experimental side effects and how this the, the mortality in the world, the mortality in in US. Uh, Dr. Pentazatos from Columbia University published like four four hundred thousand people died after COVID vaccine. So. 
if you compare with the VARES right now, it's like a 30,000 just, but it's really underscored. Yeah, underreported. Yeah, underreported. So that's my story. Let's make this short. <laughs> well. Yeah, I treat more than 1,000 patients too, because I start to treat all my patients that call me. And then, uh, I mean, it's uh, all out, out, out hospitals. So just uh, uh, especially uh, people, because in Brazil we have the drugs, I can prescribe hydroxychloroquine, ivermectin, and uh, zinc, and vitamin D, C, and everything, the protocol. But that's what you're using for the COVID patients, and yeah. what are, are you also treating vaccine victims? Yeah. I, I do. With the same kind of drugs or like uh, or different approach? Yeah, I, I, use, I use different approaches. I also use ivermectin also. Mm -hmm. But like I, I have to check first the patient. Because most patients, they don't have hematologic score screening. You have to, you know, you have to, to ask for the lab if the patient is MTFRH positive or known lining factor, uh, ferritin, fibrinogen, and I mean, all the stuff that can make you clotty. Uh, NTPF4, which is related to AstraZeneca, because in Brazil we have Johnson Johnson and AstraZeneca, so a lot of people had this kind of trouble, the side effects. So a lot of them have a positive for this antigen, NTPF4. And, um, and that's why I would do first. And then you see the patient, right? How can you deal with the situation? Especially inflammatory or, or autoimmune, autoimmune mm -hmm. and clotting. So. And can you make a distinction, the two of you, look, also between like what kind of vaccine they received, what's then the percentage of, of side effects, like more like heart problem, more clotting, more inflammatory? Is there some I, sort of statistics? I haven't looked at my patients in that way. Um, I just don't have the time. But yeah. um, I, think, I, I think it's also a worthy question of study. Um, uh, it might it might be helpful to, if, especially if you find certain disorders are occurring with certain vaccines or lots. Um, it would be helpful because if you could see, you'd be more suspicious of certain things in certain patients, and so that would be a good marker. But I I don't have it. All I know is all three uh, companies, the data is terrible. Yeah, I mean, they, they're all terrible. toxic. Um, but it would be interesting to see if there was different diseases that grouped around certain yeah. vaccines. Because we can also see in the, the, the you know, the um, microscope uh, investigation they did, like yep. that there seems to be like different parts in there that some are round, some are square, whatever the, the material or like this, this uh, fluids are. So it seems to be that it's a different consistency. Also, we talked about the different metals that are in there, you know, so it seems to be there's a lot going on and which, which unknown, even sometimes unknown, um, um, whatever substances. We, we, I tell my patients all the time that what we're doing, what we're trying to figure out, so Dr. Nasser, myself, in trying to help our patients, we're getting no help. There's no research being done into this. There's no publications on this. There's certainly no clinical trials on treating the vaccine injured. I mean, we know of one, but they misrepresented the results, and it was a very small study. It was actually done by the National Institutes of Health. Um, and so, you know, it, you know, 
the things that we're trying and learning, the tests we're sending and trying to figure out how to help these patients, it's, I think we're doing a good job, but I, it would be really great to get some help, <laughs> to get money and, and really good research and scientists, people like you doing research, going into the lab, telling me what to do. <laughs> yeah, yeah, sure, I wonder. Yeah. I'd love to. But, but there, is no, there is no research into it, right? I and mean, there may be starting a little, I, I don't know, is there anything in Brazil? The problem in Brazil, you can, you can do the, your RCTs in Arvimectin, what yeah. we did that, yeah. but uh, in side effects, yeah. they just close the doors. Yeah. Because they don't want to hear. Yeah. You know? yeah, they're not going to give you money to do a trial of treatments for the vaccine injury because you have to admit that there's vaccine injury. Yeah, the, the Fiocruz, which is the national institute uh -huh. we have, just, you know, they, they had a partnership with the AstraZeneca and Butantan in Sao Paulo with the coronavac, with Sinovac from China, which is a, a mess because this is five times more aluminum than any product you have seen. Oh, wow. It's so toxic for kidney, <laughs> kidney and heart. So. And, and breaks <laughs> what we have to say, because this is the institute of research, should be, you well, know. I mean, we have now in, in Marburg, at the University of Marburg, but I think it's rather like a privately run whatever thing, um, but um, maybe like an additional institute or so. Um, so that they've set up like a vaccine injured, um, you know, um, office kind of. You can come there and have like some treatment with a Professor Schilling, I think his name is. Oh, but the cool. thing is, you know, it's more, it seems more like an information grab kind of thing, because that a lot of people go there, that the treatment that they offer, we've seen some of the protocols, is not really helping. It's like rather inflammation pushing, at least with some of the protocols that we saw. So maybe it's really like that they are, you know, attracting a lot of people who go there and like they're doing like an uh, basically real life, um, you know, study on these people, get the information, also what kind of patches they had, like what kind of side effects they received. And, and you know, so, so it doesn't seem to be like, at least from the information that we have, also from people injured who went there and like showed us the protocol, gave us the information. It seems to be maybe like a, yeah, that you know that part of the, they're grabbing the information, but it's not really for help, or, or at least not to so much driven. Yeah. And there's rumors that also BioNTech is kind of like a, a foundation connected to them is fa founding this, uh, funding wow. the thing. So it can be really like that's, no, nothing that's good. The last thing we need. Yeah, anyway. yeah, okay. Like, thanks so much that you were here. I get tired. Yeah. I have to get to another interview, actually, not too long. Okay, um, thanks so much. Yeah. It was very, very helpful. I Thank think we'll you. see each other like in the. Oh, yeah, next very much. It was nice day. to talk with you. Definitely. Okay. See you, my friends. So, and in, in Brazil, like, is, you, you mentioned that you spoke in front of the Senate about it. Is that, did I understand that correctly? Like that you presented your information like in some like more official setting? Did yeah. You, and how yeah. was that received? Um, for the, I, I think we have a, a, a I, I have now two, 200,000 followers in all my media. It's hard to get the media because I am uh, censored all the time. And I'm in a shadow ban on Instagram, so I, I can't grow more. And I have course online course for mm -hmm. COVID and for treatment of side effects. What I do, you know, mm -hmm. the, 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 I, I think I, I mentioned is I try to address that. And also 
we trying to work with some other techniques that can help, like uh, bioresonance, mm -hmm. we call it Aquera system, mm -hmm. which is very helpful. And uh, I'm going to present tomorrow here a little bit about that because mm -hmm. we don't have much time in the, my subject. It's pretty, you know, it's hard to explain. It's a prionic disease in after COVID vaccine. So mm -hmm. I'm, a, I'm a part of a Luc Montagnier Foundation in the branch in Brazil. Mm -hmm. And uh, that's why we got together after we discovered patients with crutchfield Jacobi disease, okay. young people, young boys. And uh, they just, it was in a hospital to die, you know? And then you, you pick up those patients and treat. And uh, what are we seeing now? It's, it's, that's what Pierre was trying to address. This is it's so many different complications that, you know, it's hard to, to deal with all the things. You know, most, most doctors, they don't, uh, firstly, they don't believe, because they just, they just say, oh, no, it's not related, it's not causality, and then we show the data, patient after patient, or happens in the family, them. And then they start to, to wake up, and then you come, they come to me and, oh, do you have papers on it or anything that you're studying? I say, okay, it's here. The problem, I think, unfortunately, mm -hmm. in the world, you know the Lancet paper, New England paper, BMJ paper, showing before the pandemic that 85% of the articles published are not true. That's because all the financing by Biotech, Pfizer, and all these this labs, these pharmaceutical companies. In, uh, in, in design, of the, the, in design the, the study to be true, mm -hmm. it's very hard, you know, you cannot, domest you cannot uh, work with the science like this. Yes. Science yes. is not logical, it's not rational, you know, it's, it's part of it, but it's not more than 70%. It's, and then they try to do that, you know, all this, this cattle. And then people are reading these papers and think that this is true. And then by the end of the day, you figure out that most information you have is just not true. So imagine with the side effects of COVID genetic therapy. Uh, one last question I have. The, um, um, do you see a lot of like children's di dementia or so as well, or has that popped up? Or like you know, these you, you mentioned the Kreutzfeldt Jakobs yeah, and yeah, Alzheimer course, yeah. and, and like speedy developments of these kind of things. I, I didn't see Alzheimer's right now yet, but I, I have people, doctors from uh, my country is a continental country, mm -hmm. so I received notice from. Amazon to Rio Grande do Sul, which, which is, you know, whole, whole Europe, actually. So, um, and then they, they start to describe cases like this, Huntington, uh, ALS, mm -hmm. Parkinson's disease, Parkinson's disease I saw, and also uh, Hollywood spots after uh, Pfizer vaccine. I didn't, I, didn't, I didn't see any patient like this. 
a question. Do you, are you engaged in this movement of, of Doctors for Truth? You're involved in this, uh, in this movement uh, of protesting doctors who say we don't want to, want to have this anymore. Did you? Because we have the, we have the um, people from Spanish-speaking countries here, and I heard that you, that you are engaged in this too, and you could perhaps help us translate a little bit? Yeah, I can. This is great. This is great because what we what we are going what we want to show the people too is that there is a big big movement of doctors that are critically now yeah. and that are engaging and I was so much astonished that this movement is so big there are so many but I they can they can tell us perhaps if yeah, I, I think Brazil, they are, I think they are there doctor for a life just and there are several Me organizations medicals for la vida yeah yeah so um, Would you? And, and the, uh, do we need like one more chair or? Uh, I don't know. In one minute, okay. And then comes um, the other lady, and he will translate. Oh, this is Spanish. great. So Thank you. I'll try to do my best. <laughs> it, it's not my first language, it's my second language, but I speak I'll try. Brazil, Portuguese, Brazil. Yeah, I speak Portuguese, Spanish, and, uh, and uh, English. I train it more in English. And then, uh, but I give lectures in South America, so it's, it's a we, kind of different. But yeah, we will arrange. Yeah, 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 sure. I understand Italy, Italian and French, but it's all the same words. Natalie. Hello. Hello. Thank you very much. Thank you very much. You're welcome. Yeah, so um, we know that you've been uh, bringing together a lot of um, activities from various uh, Spanish-speaking countries, and that you also came forward with a declaration of like a medical emergency because of the vaccine uh, problems. Okay. Could you maybe tell us a little bit about it and also your background? So, okay. <laughs> Vale. Eh, okay. Sería para hablar ¿no? sobre la situación en España y, bueno, sobre la medical crisis declaration, ¿correcto? Vale. ¿Quieres que hable de eso, no? Ok, perfecto. Ok, eh, ¿alguien va a traducir o habla sí. en español y traduce usted? Perfecto. Perfecto. Entonces quiere que hable de, de eso, ¿no? Vale, bien. Eh, principalmente me gustaría eh, determinar, eh, ¿focalizándonos en América Latina o en la colaboración entre todos los países para esta sí, declaración? necesitamos es una imagen global completa, completa. Sí. En, re, con, en relación a este trabajo no sí, pero que sí. también a referencia a un trabajo anterior lógicamente que ha llevado a esto vale perfecto where it's come from before all this works done okay your name again? Mm, Natalia Prego Natalia Prego Natalia sí, Natalia Prego mucho gusto Gracias, igualmente. Okay. Eh, me presento, ¿correcto? Sí. 
muy bien. Eh, mi nombre es Natalia Prego Cancelo, soy médico, especialista en medicina de familia y comunitaria. Estudié la carrera, la licenciatura en España y después la especialidad en Portugal. Natalia Prego, she's a family doctor, she studied in Spain and then postgraduate in Portugal, which is a pleasure. El 13 de marzo del 2020 hice una conferencia en mi ciudad hablando de esta situación del coronavirus COVID-19. Yeah, March 13, March 2020, there's a conference in her city uh, talking about the situation, COVID situation in work, the global pandemic. Para tranquilizar a las personas. Yeah. Al día siguiente, en España nos encerraron, como en parte de Europa. Y el 15 de marzo, justo 24 horas después, hice un audio alertando de la manipulación emocional e informativa que estaba realizando el gobierno, no solo en España, sino en el resto del mundo y se hizo viral principalmente en el mundo hispanohablante. En el 15, March 15, there's a, she got a call, she speak, I mean, she start to speak about the mental manipulation. Mm -hmm. It's not only Spain, but the rest of the world and Europe. A partir de ese día, continué cada día eh, haciendo vídeos en YouTube, eh, transmisiones a mis eh, compañeros por WhatsApp e intentando eh, comunicar informaciones que no había en la televisión. She started to make videos in, in YouTube and uh, spread it out by the WhatsApp groups. Uh -huh to inform the people what's going on and wake, try to wake people up, especially doctors. So, so the, same, the same process all over the world happened like this in, in your countries too. And uh, I think it's very, it's very interesting to know that such things happen everywhere and some started earlier, some started later. But it, uh, you, we spoke yesterday in the evening we, we met and you, you showed me all those organizations which are, which are engaged now in many countries and I was so astonished. And, but you know this network and I said come tell us about this network because it's, it's so great, it's so, there are so many doctors standing up, being critical, yes. wanting to have the sunlight. So this is, I think it's, okay. it's very important. Y tres meses después uh, fundé Médicos por la Verdad, Doctors for the Truth, que se extendió a América Latina y parte de Europa y también la India. Tres meses después, ella empezó a Doctors for Truth en su propio país, 
and then spread out to South, to Latin America and India and everywhere now. Pero es un movimiento principalmente eh, más presente en América Latina, en el mundo hispanohablante. Yes, it's more in uh, Latin America, actually. Con mucha fuerza. With, yeah, with a lot of engagement, you know. Mm -hmm. A raíz de ahí, muchos grupos eh, al mismo tiempo y posterior se fueron formando en todo el mundo. And, from this group, a lot of, I mean, different groups start to born, you know, yeah. Y este año, 2022, después de más de un año y medio de campañas de inoculación de las mal llamadas vacunas COVID-19. In uh, 22, two years and a half after, especially one and a half after the vaccination, call vaccines, but experiment genetic therapies. Muchos médicos y muchos de nosotros pensábamos que era necesaria una acción conjunta por una necesidad social y una necesidad personal también de todos nosotros. Yeah, as we doc, we are doctors, we join the same thought of uh, spread this information to not only the country, but the whole world. Me han preguntado que por qué en este momento, y yo considero que es un momento importante para denunciar todas esas muertes y esos pacientes ignorados. Yeah, and but for us now it's very important to proclaim against all the side effects, all the patients you know, hurted by these products. Y considero que los grupos, nosotros, en nuestros países y con nuestras agrupaciones ya estamos maduros y ya estamos fuertes como para hacer un trabajo conjunto. So we now we realize that we are strong and then can work, we can work together for this purpose. Respetando el trabajo que cada uno ha hecho, pero contribuyendo para fortalecer un trabajo común. Yeah, in spite of the different ways of this group, we consider to work very strong in this field. Y eso se ha manifestado en una declaración, Medical Crisis Declaration. So it's in the clear, in our, uh, what, what you're saying? Declaration. de Crisis Médica Internacional. Okay, the medical crisis, international medical, medical crisis. Declaration de Crisis Médica Internacional por Enfermedades y Muertes Correlacionadas con Vacunas COVID-19. Yeah, by disease and side effects of coronavirus vaccines. En donde participan casi 40 países con sus agrupaciones y sus médicos alzando la voz para que haya investigación con estas mal llamadas vacunas COVID-19 y paralización de las inoculaciones para realmente investigar. So we, we are now in 40 countries asking uh, to stop the, this project of vaccination and uh, 
to deal better with the side effects. In 40 countries, 40. 40, 40. Great. And in South, in South America, in, in Asia, in, in where else? All, all America Latina. In, in Europe. Todo America yes. Latina. Um, USA, Canada, Canada. Mm. Uh, India, Russia, um, Portugal. Just to, to ask She's from Canada. Yes. Would you? Do I introduce myself? Yes. I'm Dr. Jennifer Hibbert from Toronto, Canada, and I'm co-founder of the World Council for Health and the Pan American Alliance for Life. And I've been collaborating extensively with Latin America. And we had a big conference down in Brazil uh, just in July. And in the process of preparing for the conference, because uh, I've worked very closely with Dr. Lucy Kerr and with a number of the doctors down there, because actually I'm writing the, the papers that they're doing in Atajahi with 20, 220,000 people, residents that have participated, a phenomenal study on ivermectin. So we've become, uh, you know, working, collaborating, like you said, and we're all collaborating so much together. So I realized that there was a need for us to create a united front together across the Americas. So I talked about introducing and starting an alliance down in Brazil. So we've been working and putting it together. We're now getting our website up. And actually last Saturday, with the international emergency, uh, medical emergency, uh, for regarding all of this crisis situation across the world, uh, I went on to Bolivia, Bolivia Mainstream Television and talked on there, on there, they had a, a Zoom call from Toronto. And we went on Medicos Pelavitas. Uh, I went on with Dr. Kat Lindley, Dr. Richard Urso, and Dr. Ryan Cole who are all part of the uh, Pan-American Alliance, and we talked uh, on, those, on those airwaves. So we're totally collaborating. Came into the Zoom calls that, uh, amazing how, how uh, Patricia pulled all, or Natasha, Natalia pulled all of this together so quickly, and we came on from all over the world to participate. Uh, it's an amazing, amazing movement. Um, I've been involved in the movement from the very beginning. Uh, I, I co-founded the Canadian Cove Care Alliance, which is probably the largest doctors and scientists and uh, just putting out information to try and guide and help people. I'm on the board of the Canada Health Alliance, which is the largest integrative uh, medical alliance in Canada. I'm one of the freedom leaders. We come together weekly and discuss what's going on with all the freedom movements across Canada. I'm down here, I've invited down, and they are with us here, is the freedom leaders from Canada, from Brazil, from various places around the world, from Australia. Uh, we brought in Monica Smith, uh, and also Leighton and Chantal from New Zealand. We're from all across the world and all across right. Europe. Yeah. So this is a very important place for us to come and meet, collaborate, meeting in person is phenomenal. We all know it. Right. <laughs> and, and now you have you you are working, or you are, you have prepared a, a text or such a um, how do you call the paper? How do you how you how do you call the initiative you you do together? What uh, okay? As far as the 
Pan-American Alliance for Life. Yes. Uh, we are, we've brought, we have representatives from every country across the Americas, Canada, mm -hmm. US, Middle America, and South America. And we are, we will have all of the pillars of information that people need on the website, but it will direct them to the sources. Uh, we're not trying to reinvent the wheel. Uh, this will be a very different alliance. Uh, we've got every aspect of society, um, you know, uh, in, in every, you know, the, the, the governing bodies, the people that will, will work with us, we will work with them so, so we understand what's going on in the military, in the police, in the, for, the, for the people who are, um, you know, the, the pilots, uh, the lawyers, the doctors, you know, all across. So we are collaborating together and we will, I'm, I was talking to a lawyer from Switzerland and they've got all sorts of documents that they're putting together. We're going to work with all of that and we will pass it amongst ourselves and basically all the wins we want to know so that we can build on that. You know, how did you win? How did that happen? Show us the documents, just like you're collecting information for people so that they can have resources. And this is what will work, and we'll create strategies to empower people. I think it's great. You know, I think it's very important that we have these local activities and that it's not governed by some some top-down, you yeah. know, organization yeah. because then you can corrupt or like um, stop the the top of that organization. But you have it's basically just a, it's, a, it's sort of a network, you know. But you have these local activities and then locally maybe they're also like regional or like you know spreading out in all kinds of of activities. I think that's very important because that's 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 a much safer safer place to start with and you don't have any corrupt funding you know then maybe that because it's like they're all individually um, organized and so if one of them goes down whatever then you have others to jump in so I think we really have to also watch out for these kind of uh, constellations in these times for one sure. must say yeah affiliating together right and yeah one gets has something happen inside the organization or from outside you just you you just shift sideways and you carry on and you keep the network going and you close up that network again right just like you yeah. were saying and keep it going and really it's finding a new way forward for a better world and as the world council for health says you know uh, you know a better way for a better world and i think all of us have been using this expression probably for years, and now we're all coming together and, and I'm talking to people here and they're saying, you know, I've been using that line for a long time. And I said, well, now's the reality of it all too. And we'll help people in local communities and, and all of the medical and scientific, anyway, every walk of life, how they can function and move forward and step away from the fear because we know this is all fear-driven. Fear-driven, certain large degree of theater, I feel too. Mm -hmm. um, I believe, you know, the fear, but then I think a lot of people haven't looked at the other side. When you see Klaus Schwab, I believe there's a lot of theater there. And do, you, do you think a lot of fear over there? Uh, theater. Oh, theater. Also fear, but yes. fear, yes. And actually, I, I believe that afraid. I believe people in the movement are fear in that. And, and the fear is as great or possibly greater than people fear the virus on the other side that are getting vaccinated because they get vaccinated and they think that they're fine. But in the movement, they're constantly focusing on, on what's, the, the, what's, what's powering what's happening to everybody. And they're fearing that. And I think there's probably a lot of theater going on there. And I, and I point out lightly 
that The Wizard of Oz is a good movie to look at. <laughs> you pull back the curtain and guess what's there, right? Not such a big, just not such a big entity to fear. So hopefully it will empower people to realize if they only knew individually the amount of power that they have themselves. And you know, if you stand up for your rights, you can't be invaded. You can't, you know, you can't get destroyed. And you come together and unite with others like you. Uh, you know, our numbers are so much greater than the, than the numbers of whatever or whoever is standing up to suppress humanity. Right? Yeah. So. You, tried, you tried to make something like a resolution or, resol or a program, a text, yeah, where the you don't. Declaration. The we decla should declaration. We should speak about that. I think it's very important because this is a declaration which is, uh, which is international. So we can all join, basically. Yes. Manifesting. You should pre perhaps you should present this. Well, that's what. So who's who's signed that already? La declaración tiene tres partes. En la primera parte se expone una realidad con datos objetivos y estadísticos de la propia OMS y de las propias agencias reguladoras del medicamento. Es la situación. Sí, es la situación de WHO y agencias. Sin ningún tipo de subjetividad por nuestra parte, sin ningún tipo de calificación a ellos, salvo que son números altos que nunca se habían dado en la historia de la vacunación ni con otro tipo de medicaciones. Uh, it's not a data, subjective data, it's a really realistic and the data from their cells. So, mm -hmm. you, you, so utilizan las datos, los datos de las organizaciones Ellos. mundiales eh, oficiales. Claro, Solamente. no hemos hablado de nuestra experiencia o nuestro trabajo. Hemos hablado solo de lo que ellos nos mm. muestran. Que ellos presenten. Que ellos presentan mm. datos oficiales. Yeah, there's mm -hmm. official data just from them, from the agencies. Mm -hmm. Evidentemente, sabiendo que solo representan del 1 al 10% de la realidad, de los eventos reales, probablemente. Just one percent of the real data, real side effects. En base a esa interpretación y en esa realidad, pedimos medidas a tomar. Yeah, but so after the consequence. We claim for the responsibilities and uh, the real action from them, what they can do about that. Mm -hmm. Y en esa segunda parte eh, explicamos las medidas que se deben tomar. And the second part is the measurements they have to take. Para realmente que no aumenten las muertes ni las enfermedades. Yeah, to mitigate the, the death and the side effects, the consequences. Las medidas, principalmente la primera y la más importante, es paralización de las inoculaciones. The most important thing is to stop the, the vaccination. Para investigar. Yeah. To investigate. Investigar las causas de las muertes haciendo autopsias. Yeah. yeah. So investigate by the autopsies, watching the case, the causes. Investigar completamente las composiciones de los viales. Yeah, it's very important what is what's the compounds of the each 
vaccine. Yeah. Yeah. E investigar a los pacientes, a las personas que están sufriendo. Exacto. Las firmas son individuales, okay. personales. Mm -hmm. Después están las organizaciones que dan mm -hmm. apoyo, okay. pero por una cuestión jurídica eh, preferimos, y social también, preferimos que los médicos sean libres y las personas libres para firmar sin tener que pertenecer a ninguna organización. Es importante ser libre para unirse a la organización without any side, uh, conflict of interest. Mm -hmm. De hecho, quisimos hacer un documento lo más objetivo y lo menos ofensivo posible mm -hmm. para que los médicos todos se puedan adherir y puedan comprender. Yeah, the document has to be no offensive and comprehensive. You know, by each doctor in the world can understand and, you know, yeah. get together is able to sign it. Yeah. And there is there are no obstacles, other obstacles. Yes. Finalmente en el documento pedimos lógicamente apoyo y ayuda a las víctimas. Yeah, in the document we, we insist for the help which is which has to be very important in this document for the victims of the experiments. También detección temprana de posibles eventos cardiovasculares con análisis de dímeros de hidroponina, básicamente. Sí, algunos uh, lab scores, I mean, lab tests, como like troponin y G-dimer, para reconocer los cardiovasculares eventos. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Para evitar el riesgo de muerte súbita. Sí, para evitar. The sudden death. Yeah. You also uh, you also want to spread this, this knowledge among doctors, I think, because it's very important that the doctors know what they can do to find out early exactly. early uh, exactly. damage, the signs of damage. Yes, and be be aware that this could happen. Los médicos no saben. Mm -hmm. They, so. The doctors uh, don't know. Many yeah, doctors. Yes, I think, I think many doctors, they just, they just want to see it. They just don't even want to think of such possibilities. This is a big problem. And it's very good if we have, in many countries, if you have a movement that just tells us, just have a look on that. If you do this, you can avoid a lot of damage. 
and you can help the people. Exactly. Yeah. Exactly. The, the problem in this is, is this is hypnosis. That's the the main issue, because doctor was trained to obey the articles, the agencies, the WHO. Yes. That's the main point. And then the, what they say, it's the truth. But this time, it's it's opposite. You know. We have to have in mind the doctor is not responsible to the WHO. He's not responsible for the government. He's not responsible to any police, to anyone. He's only responsible with his patient, yeah. to his patient. However, the education has, has been a form of indoctrination. So we look at it and think hypnosis because we're going, what, what can't people see? But it's actually deeper than that. It's not a momentary thing that, that they got from the media. It's indoctrination. It's how the medical system has been probably building up for maybe decades, uh, certainly in the last decade. And you go into an emergency room and a doctor has a checklist mm -hmm. of medicines they are able to give for a certain ailment. So when someone comes in with a certain problem, they can use that medicine. And that they are required to stay within that framework in the hospital, not think, not free think. And I think the so education the has gone in that direction too. So the doctor is no longer necessary. Appears that way. Well, I, this is the direction. You're right, <laughs> because if they're given a checklist, you Just can do you can do that. You can plug that in and do it for algorithm. yourself. Algorithm. Mm. So this is uh, this may explain why they are in denial of this because they've been indoctrinated, and their belief system. And actually, when you say that they're answerable to nobody. Uh, all of us in the healthcare industry have been indoctrinated to um, bow down to our governing bodies. And our governing bodies are, are supposedly set up, and we actually pay for them to do this, is to protect the public. So we have a college that's, that polices supposedly their members to make sure that they're doing the best for, their, for the public. But no matter what happens if you had a, an individual that doesn't like the color of your shoes you know you you get pulled into college and the college has always mentored do whatever it takes to please the public mm -hmm. so even if the public is radically wrong that the member which i'm talking about the doctor the chiropractor the dentist mm -hmm. has been indoctrinated to basically follow their direction mm -hmm. and feedback whatever the college tells them to feedback in order to take their name off that list of you know they don't have to go into this whole uh, there's a process you go through you go into mediation and then you go beyond that you go to disciplines and they go beyond that so nobody wants that so it's again an indoctrination so they actually have a power at that and that's the threat and actually very early on in the pandemic I was getting communications from naturopaths even where they were told that they were not allowed to put anything on their website about natural immunity and no treatment protocols. They were not allowed to discuss any kind of therapies with their patients or they would be disciplined. I think it's, it would be very good if uh, you could provide um, the, the Corona Ashes uh, with uh, the papers with your with your with your papers and also with the organization you had labels of organizations of all those countries 
all the names of those organizations following this idea and assisting to, to spread this knowledge. And I think this would be very good. We could, we could just have so that people in our country can see, wow, all over the world there are doctors organizing. Yes. And this is that the is ideas, this is the ideas they have. Yes. And the people who are following what you're putting out to the public yes. is the citizens. And may they take it to their doctors and their health care providers and present it to their doctors and say, please read this. Yes. If, and they'll say, they may look at it and say, I don't know what you're talking about. You must read this because there's information in here that you may not know. It's a good remedy against this ignorance because when, you, when, you, when you're inside a country and there is a few group of doctors who just oppose, who say, oh, we have more questions than you are dealing with. There are other questions we should deal with. And they, you can just easily say, oh, this is just, they have different opinion, okay, it's not important. But if you see that all around this country, all over the world, there are many thousands of doctors who are aware of all those problems, which those doctors in our country don't even want to see. It would be very good process. Mm -hmm. so, so the solution would come from outside. Yeah. But may the solution come from the citizens too. Yes. Because it's very easy to dismiss your colleagues and say, and, and there may be thousands, but that number is very few uh, when you go country by country. Uh, and if the citizens bring this forward to mm -hmm. the doctors, because there's a lot of citizens that follow what you're doing, and they bring it forward to their doctors that they know uh, it, is not awake to this, it'll make a huge, huge difference. We are all possible patients. Mm -hmm. But I think that the outside view is also really, really important. I mean, when I remember when we started the, the Corona Investigative Committee, you know, we were still wondering what has been going on in Italy there. You know, then you look at it and then you have explanations, whatever. I mean, the, the average age of these deceased, like 80-something years. And, you know, you have a, see a lot of these, you know, that the nurses, like, went off to, to East Germany because they were afraid of the lockdown. So they were also left on their own devices to some extent. I mean, there were a lot of stuff going on and people, you know, from the old uh, people's, or like sick people were putting into the old people's homes, like, and then infected other ones. So many things going on. We had no idea. We thought at, in the beginning, this is just a German problem that we're looking at. And so I think it's, they're also presenting us with, you know, like whatever, Austria just went into lockdown. Look how dangerous it is there. Look how dangerous it is here. So we also have to do the same thing. So I think the... Um, the solution can also come from, see, in America they're doing this, you know, and in Latin America that these, all these doctors, uh, you know, joining forces, and I think that's really inspirational. I mean, for me also, I, I, I was impressed. I didn't know that there was this giant activity in Latin America. Your eyes a little bit. We have a number of, of, of world uh, groups that come together. I mean, we all try to come in and there, we've got so many different conflicts that we depend on each other to bring the information back. Cause I'm in the World Council and I might be in my steering committee meeting, which is really critical meeting for us to attend to work on. And the World Doctors Alliance meeting is on at the same time. So I'll call Zafiria, who's in, in Greece, and she's, she's involved with, uh, with organizing. I'm going, Zafiria, bring me up to date. So we're all networking to try and make sure that we, we're coming in to each other's meetings and learning all of this because we keep trying to compound this information to put it out to the world and we're putting out to people we know we're putting it out to people 
that are aware of what we're doing, but may they take it that much further and it just keeps exponentially expanding out there. So, you know, it's like an actually it's like a, a, a global situation room that we're creating here because I think we really need to join these forces like each each one of us. I mean, I, I we must not never underestimate, you know, the, the force and the influence of one individual who has uh, power and, and faith and, you know, strength and just goes goes for the, the good thing. But I think in this uh, it's good to do this with other people together who are like minded. Mm -hmm. And I think this is really just going to bring us so much further in the whole development it gives well, this is creating solutions we're going to create solutions we're strat we will strategize mm -hmm. and this is really what it's about at this point i when we were coming into 2020 because really we were just building our knowledge before just like you were building information a pool of information it's like oh and you started to realize what's going on around the world and we've all been doing that in 2022 when i said we were approaching it i said okay this is a year of exponential collaboration Mm -hmm. And now I feel that there's a shift and certainly those of us who are looking forward to where we see things evolving to is we're shifting now to a stage of international strategization mm -hmm. and we're going to line up our ducks and we're <laughs> going to turn them around and we're going to start to push back because we have been reacting all along up until now mm -hmm. and we've had to right people yes, get sick yes, it's yes. like okay okay what's what do we have what do we have that will treat them because early on they wouldn't listen in canada i had a woman come to me and this was early in april 2020 and she told me about a nursing home her mother was in and that they had a scabies outbreak and they were treated with ivermectin <laughs> and they all did really well in the first wave I said, wow, we have to get this out. I've got a network that can get me right through to the prime minister's office. So we were trying to get in touch with journalists, with, with uh, the, and the Ministry of Health, and the prime minister's office. We had one or two journalists that wanted to take it forward, but they were told, cut. You can't do that story. Nothing came back from the prime minister's office. And unfortunately, innocently, we, we wasted maybe up to two months trying to do this. And then I said, you know what, come on over to my place. Uh, I had just started a YouTube channel uh, because I was, you know, I was shut down. My clinic was shut down. The hospital was shut down. So you're, you're starting to talk to the public because I saw so much fear. So I talked to the public. And, and that's not my space, but I stepped into it because your healthcare provider you want to help people so I had to do something so you step into that space and I was telling people how to manage and get out without get, being so scared and I said come on to my YouTube channel you know my modest YouTube channel will get it out to the world and started going out there you know it went viral I let her tell the story about her and I interviewed her and uh, Tom Barodi on Sky News said when I saw that that interview and that talk, I knew that I had to look more into ivermectin. And apparently, I was the first person to speak about ivermectin and social media. And it just took off. And then we had groups in, in uh, YouTube and uh, groups in uh, Facebook, Twitter. I became a bit of a warrior there, because at that stage, you just knew it was a matter of disseminating this information as fast as you can. And that's where I started writing papers with other doctors around the world. And this is the big network that started. So it actually started internationally. And Canada, crickets, nothing going on in Canada. you know. So, so it actually brought me back into Canada, right? And starting things in Canada. And I'm sure probably the same scenario in Spain and in, in, in Latin America. 
that this is how we entered it, probably internationally, and then you bring the information in and start activating things nationally. Yeah, fantastic. You know, I think we're on the right track. We had a, a previous session where we said that, that we called breathing down their necks. And I think this is what we are. And we must intensify this, um, you know, this process. And I think this is now, I mean, I'm really looking forward to like mingling now at the uh, Congress and also listening to some of the uh, talks, or a lot of them, especially now the pathology conference, which, which, is, will start soon, which yes. will start soon. That's why we should end here now to end to go to the other room. Um, yeah, but it's so fantastic what you do and um, keep on the good work and we'll also disseminate the declaration yes. so people can also join it and, uh, and then... And I, f I find it very good that you, that you avoid uh, um, to, to, to use very, very uh, provoking things, that you try to, to, to speak with the people in their language and that you want to, that you, want, you take their information that they just open their eyes, what they have, what they know. And I think it's a very good, it's a very good... Solo con la lectura del manifiesto? Mm -hmm. Only. Only the, the reading of the manifesto. Ya se conocen muchísimas cosas más. Only, only. And then you take, yeah, with the, with you take knowledge of everything. Okay, yes. we're looking forward to... Yes. to and, and the most it. important is, the most important is that our companions, in other doctors from India, Russia, are together, we are all together, and they also needed Europe, mm -hmm. America, they were very solos. Yeah, it's very important that uh, we are doctors from around the world, and uh, we need we need Europe get in touch with this too, you know, because it's Russia, India, South America, Latin America, Africa. Canada, Africa, everywhere, Australia, New Zealand. Vienna is almost in the heart of Europe, so it's, yeah. a, good, it's a good place to start. So. <laughs> yes, like a right. bomb, right? Yeah. <laughs> okay, so thanks ever so much for being here for your keep up the good work. And then we'll, yeah, we'll see each other in a, in a second out there. So I just speak my closing words, like for the audience. Yeah, also wir sind wieder am Ende einer Sitzung hier, unserer 122. Sitzung. Und wir werden jetzt ähm, uns eben in den Kongress begeben, äh, tanzend vielleicht morgen. Congress uh, dancing maybe tomorrow evening, but uh, get the process uh, in the back doors stopped and uh, really move our own world and the things that we think of for move them forward, uh, doing things that are good for the people. Thank you for watching. We live of donations by the audience. We'd be happy if you support our work. And beyond that, we'll meet again next week. And uh, have a wonderful Friday night and a good weekend. Thank you and goodbye.